One time I was drunk on a morning show in Montana The host asked me if I had a nickname Said my friends call me the Dirtbag King She said on the air I started giggling Hasn't had me back but now I've got this podcast Welcome to my podcast Hey, Dirtbags, thanks so much for tuning in to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. This is your host, Charles Ellsworth, and I'm so stoked to have you here today. This episode, we got Jeff Sher Moses, a friend of mine that I met last fall at a place called Brooklyn Music Kitchen. Uh, the deserters and I were playing a show, and Jeff was there, and we played Miami, Arizona, and he was like, what do you know about Miami, Arizona? And afterwards, we ended up talking, and apparently he lived in Phoenix for a while, and he used to organize a festival in Miami called Miami Loco. Those of you that don't know, I have a song called Miami, Arizona, and... Miami, Arizona is just like this really small old mining town and not a whole lot of people would know about it. And so that's why Jeff was amazed that I knew about it and that I had a song about it. And he was like, I used to organize a festival there. You got to play it this year. I'll get you in touch with my friends. And so that's why the last tour I went on with the Deserters, the Moon in Miami tour, was mostly booked around that festival, which ended up getting canceled. But we still played there and it was a great time anyways. But yeah, that was how I met Jeff. And then and so why I wanted to have Jeff on the podcast is because not only has he organized music festivals in the past, he's also been putting on shows for a very long time, he's been involved in the music scene in Phoenix, been involved in the music scene here in Brooklyn, and also he's the manager for a rapper called Mega Ran, who is, uh, they described it as like a nerdcore rapper, raps about gaming and positivity, and Mega Ran's newest record is called Live 95, we talked about it on the podcast today, it's about his relationship with basketball and what it meant to him growing up. He's great, I've listened to him a bunch since I met Jeff and I really dig Mega Ran's stuff and it's really cool to have Jeff on the podcast so we'll get to that really quickly and I can't wait for you to hear it but first a little word from our sponsor which is usually my Patreon. Uh, Patreon for those of you that don't know is a subscription service where you can sign up to throw an artist or an organization or something that you believe in uh, some extra dollars each month whether it's three, five, ten and in return depending on what level you sign up for you get a bunch of perks and get things back and I've got some exclusive merchandise that you can only get on Patreon there that looks really fucking cool it's from my friend John Ross Boyce if you listen to the podcast I mean sorry if you're a patron of mine on Patreon and you've been for over three months you're going to be getting something in the mail soon and I'm really excited for you guys to get it all because it's some really cool stuff and if you're not a patron of mine on Patreon you should go sign up for as little as three dollars a month it doesn't really cost you a whole lot but it makes a big difference for me you know everybody that listens to this podcast would go sign up for Patreon at three five dollars a month it may not mean much to you but I swear it would make a huge difference in my life. So consider going to patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth and signing up. I would really appreciate it. If you sign up for my Patreon at the $10 a month tier or more, then you get a shout out on this podcast as one of the things you get back. And so this week I want to shout out my friend Ethan. Thank you so much for being a patron of mine. Your support over the years has been nothing short of amazing. You're one of the first people to always order the new record when it comes out on vinyl or a new t-shirt. And we've been friends since college. It's been over a decade and I'm just so grateful for the times we spent together, especially some of those nights in college where we were, you know, on brain vacations and whatnot. It was... (laughs) 
I don't know. It's been a really good time. And Ethan's just a great dude. He's a great friend, and I'm just so happy to call him a friend of mine. If you want to be like Ethan, go to patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth. I'm totally aware that the economy and everything just kind of fucked right now. Everything's so expensive. I filled up the tank on the van the other day. It cost me over $100. Oh, my God. Uh, half of what I made at the show I was going to. It's just like, uh, I don't know. So I get everything is kind of fucked right now. So if you don't have the money to throw towards me or someone else on Patreon, that's okay. There's plenty of ways you can help me out that are free. And when I say help me out, it's kind of interchangeable with other artists that you support, especially when it comes to liking and sharing their material. For instance, if you listen to the podcast and you enjoy it, if you would subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and a five-star rating, I promise that would make such a difference for us. I really want to start getting the podcast out to more and more people, and I'm making it more of a priority in my life. So it'd be really nice to see those efforts pay off and have more and more people listening to the podcast. We could have more dirtbags in our network, and life's just better when we got more good people in our lives. So last week I said that I was going to read my favorite five-star rating and review from Apple Podcasts, and lucky for me, there's only one, and so choosing my favorite was super easy. Uh, This one's from Katie, I guess, and the headline is Perfect Listen for Artists. And this is what Katie had to say. I'm always wondering, what do creatives talk about when they're not actually creating? And this podcast fulfills that morbid curiosity. If you're an artist yourself, you'll find encouragement from hearing others share the real deal struggles of the lifestyle along with the reasons they couldn't live any other way. The host Charles leads the conversation in a way that feels both organic but empathetic. Fun listen, especially if you're on the road. So thank you so much, Katie, for the review. Anyone else out there, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a review. I'll read my favorite one on the air next week. And uh, you can get funny with them, get weird with them, try not to be mean. Well, I mean, if you're mean, I'm probably not going to choose it as my favorite. Really, it's so easy for you to do, and it's just such a high-impact thing for me. I just would really appreciate it, and I'm trying to get more and more people to do that. So go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the podcast with your friends that you think would enjoy it, as well as my music, Charles Ellsworth. And also, I do instrumental music under the name A.B. Chediskai. That's C-H-E-D-I-S-K-I. On anywhere you listen to music, I have music there. If you'd like to hear my music live in the next few weeks, uh, there's a few opportunities for you to do that. On the 17th, I'm playing at the Catskill Brewery in Livingston Manor, New York. On the 18th, I'm playing at... Do Good Spirits in Roscoe, New York. And then on the 3rd of July, I'm playing at the Middle East in Cambridge, Massachusetts with my friends Guyville from Los Angeles. And then on the 4th, we're playing at Low High in Brooklyn on the rooftop. It's going to be great. It's going to be a really cool show. Right after we're done is going to be fireworks. You're going to be able to see them all around the city. So please come out. That would be a lot of fun to have you there. Uh, Low High in Brooklyn on the 4th of July. And then again on the 6th of July, I'm at Heaven Can Wait in Manhattan solo with Guyville once again. And then I've got some tour dates to announce, but I'm not quite ready to announce them yet. So hopefully next week we're going to be kind of all around the country solo in July and a little bit of August. So keep your eyes out for that. Yeah. And lastly, it's summertime. People are road tripping, even with gas prices as crazy as they are. I'm sure a lot of you are going to be on the road. And I just want to say be safe out there. Be vigilant while you're on the road. And always remember rule number one, don't break the law when you're breaking the law. Make sure if you've got weed or any sort of drugs on you that you don't speed and the taillights all work, your headlights work, everything like that. If you're breaking two laws or more, the chances of you getting caught for something go up exponentially. So we all know the war on drugs in this country is dumb as fuck and just outdated, just dumb bullshit. Still, lots of us in lots of parts of the country could get in a lot of trouble for carrying 
are planned. So please just be careful out there. Enjoy your time on the road this summer and, and keep an eye out for the shows I've got coming up. This is my friend, Jeff Sher Moses. <laughs> Sorry, like, that's a weird place to start, but no, like you said, With like great podcast comes great <laughs> responsibility. You got to make sure the high is coffeeed and high if they want to be. Did I say the high? I, the guest uh, is high and coffeeed if they want to be. <laughs> I am the high. The host is, is also the high. <laughs> no, but you're saying um, that like uh, innocuous comment gets under your skin like super heavily and like i'm i'm dude i'm so that way um weird way weird place to start but like uh yeah i'm like writing music with the band and it's not right now just my songs that i'm like hey do this you know or like here's these songs that i wrote we're like collaborating like really heavily and sometimes that can be like a situation where someone says something and i'm like like take it the worst way possible and it's like that is not what they meant at all. At the end of the day, like in the music industry, we're all driven by our egos. We are not here because, you know, ever we're going to change the world or I'm really introverted or whatever. What's his name from Tool is supposedly like not into the spotlight. But like at the end of the day, uh, Maynard, uh, Maynard, at the end yeah. of the day, like bullshit. You're not trying to make music and make like you don't think what you have to say is so important that other people need to hear it because you don't have an ego. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, and... I don't know a whole lot about that dude, but I mean, but anyone you hear, this musician is really introverted or they don't have much of an ego. I just picked him as an example because he's like famously the band will be out front and he'll be in the dark in the back at like oh, concerts. Yeah. yeah, that's like his thing. Oh, totally. I I don't like Tool, anyone listening to this. <laughs> I listened to them enough in my high school weight room that I don't ever need to listen to them again. <laughs> You know, that's how I feel about fucking Disturbed. I never needed to listen to them in the first place or ACDC. My high school weight room was a lot more like Dipset. Oh, I'm yeah. From, I'm from Teaneck, New Jersey, right outside the city. And when I was in high school, Cameron was God. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cameron is still God. Cam, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> Probably not listening to this podcast, but <laughs> we will be if I send it to him directly. We should tweet it. <laughs> Every once in a while, I try and show like I'd give like the bled CD to my 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 football coach or the, the weight room teacher who was also my football coach. Like, Hey, can Are we listen? A football player? Yeah. What position did you play? I played guard and defensive end. Me too. Really? I was a football player. I played offensive and defensive line. Yeah. Dude, that's uh, that's awesome. My, my Were friend, you a fat kid? no, I just went to a small school and I was like big for my school. <laughs> well, and I was also just like, like mean, you know, any other school, <laughs> any other school you I would have were mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean like any other school, I probably would have been a quarterback. Cause like I was a pitcher in baseball and I had like a really good arm, but like they already had people to play quarterback. They needed like reliable people to play guard. You know, my junior year, I switched from running back and quarterback to guard because they were like, we don't have a good person to do this. And like, we know that you could just, you could do any position on the field if we asked you to. And not that I'm like the most athletic person. It's just like, Oh, you're smart and you work hard. So we could just plug you in somewhere and we know you're not going to be like a huge liability. You're not going to be a superstar. Don't get me talking about high school football. Like, oh, I'll talk about high school football. Uh, dude, forever. I fucking, it's, that's so funny. I did not expect that. Uh, yeah, so you grew up in Teaneck, uh, New Jersey? Yep. Um, and yeah, what? this is my friend Jeff. Those you have, you've, If you're listening to this, you read it on the podcast app that you, you had to hit play on, so you know that. But I am Jeff Cher Moses. I'm from Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, I grew up, you know, five minutes outside of New York City, so, like, New York City's always been right there my whole life. Oh, cool. I think before I moved here, I might have even, for ease, tell someone I am from New York City. Mm -hmm. 
But now that I live here, it's I realize what a lie that is and how different, like, even coming from so close, I knew nothing about New York City until I moved here. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. For sure. It makes It also makes a lot of sense. And I, and I like, have a lot of friends who grew up in New York City, and they're mostly... I mean, I think they're mostly in an adv- at an advantage to like kids like me that grew up in like small towns, as far as like exposure to the rest of the world and culture and everything like that. But there's also a type of shelteredness that can only happen by growing up in fucking Manhattan. Absolutely, I think in any liberal place, in any Teaneck is this way too. You kind of convince yourself that the rest of the world is, you know, everyone's not as far along as they wish they were, but New York is probably a lot farther along than Pine Top, Arizona. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, like you forget that the rest of the world is out there and what that's like. Totally. No, I, I have that trouble, you know, like the, the whole conversation about the bubble after the 2016 election. Like everybody, you live in these bubbles and because nobody expected Trump to win or whatever. Nobody at least as far as in, in my bubble, you know, and uh, I find myself thinking about all kinds of issues all the time. This is like a... Interestingly, I think my... I was in New York City at that point already, and everyone in New York knew Hillary was going to mop the floor with them. My my more radical friends in Arizona knew. They knew early in the game that Trump was likely to win that election. The people I knew that were like more on the ground floor, and I mean in like my friends that were in quote-unquote Trump country or whatever you want to call it, they definitely had like a much more of a finger on the pulse. We were all like, look at this scary, like this is scary, but he's also a fucking clown. I called him a circus animal. I did mushrooms the day of the election. Like that night I was on mushrooms when I found out that Donald Trump was going to be the next president. I remember that (laughs) night uh, distinctly so well. I was working at the Bowery hotel at the time on their event staff. And I was working as a bar back that night for an election watch party. Uh, we all did a lot of different jobs at the at the Bowery. I was a captain at the time too, but that event I was working as a bar back, and um, <clears throat> I remember it was a it was definitely like a neo lib. Everyone coming in was you know voting for Hillary, and everyone was real excited when they got there, spending money. The bar was doing well. We made a shit ton of money that night, and um, Hillary won some states. The party got bigger. People kept drinking. Everyone's jovial. Then Trump won some states. And it became more fun, honestly. Like, every, like no one thought he was going to win. So I was like, oh, he won a couple, whatever. Let's keep drinking. This is great. And then he won a bunch. And then he won a bunch more. Uh-huh. And then it just got quiet. And it was dead quiet in there. People start filtering out the bar. You know, we're not making any money anymore. No one's drinking. No one's having a good time. And I go out on the floor with my, uh, my manager at the time. Her name was Vivian. And she looks around and just goes, wow. It feels like a hurricane shelter in here. With like all these, uh, like we're we're in there by candlelight. The TVs, there's a like 97 TVs on. All the talking heads all over the room, and I saw this um this little like you know 25, 20, 23, 25 year old girl holding a giant blue teddy bear and crying. And I just thought to myself, like if I had my camera, I'm a, I'm also a photographer as well as working in music. Uh, I would have the front cover of the New York Times for the next day. It was so perfect. Yeah, damn. And then we walked out after work, cleaned up. We met up, uh, me. Uh, my friend Malcolm was working, and uh, one of his friends who worked in the a different section of the hotel, we all met up, and it was just like, it felt like a bomb went off. Yeah. Like, it felt like a natural disaster had happened in New York City. It was very, very strange that night. Yeah. I remember being, uh, you know, tripping pretty good, being on the Williamsburg Bridge when, like, my friends and I were, like, looking at the numbers, and that's when, like, Trump started winning more states, and it was starting to look like 
pretty close and we were like tripping pretty good and like we should walk back home and <laughs> let's know. go cry guys we got, i got home and it was like it, he had pretty they hadn't called it but he pretty much won and i was like i'm gonna go try and go to bed maybe this is a bad dream you know and yeah i uh and you, so you said i'm gonna jump all over the place yeah but, i want to actually jump away from this yeah so totally so but you grew up like in tianek you said it was like is am i pronouncing that right yeah, Tianek. yeah um do you uh you said it was a, you know pretty liberal. It's just outside of New York City. Very much. Uh, there was a teacher in our school system, Miss Deborah Lacey. She was like Martin Luther King's homie, and we very much like marketed our town on that. Oh, really? And there's more too. We were uh, we were the first town to voluntarily integrated school system in okay. the entire country. Wow. And that woman, Deborah Lacey, actually now has a middle school named after her in town. It was. Thomas Jefferson Middle School. Now it's Deborah Lacey Middle School. Hell so just yeah. to give you an idea of the gravitas they give to that woman in town, you know, that's what I mean? that's amazing. That's yeah. uh, that that's the gravitas she commands. No, totally the, commands yeah. and deserves. I uh, um, so what was growing up like? You know, you it seems like you had a pretty like a front row seat to New York City in a lot of ways without being in the city, but... I got to um, go to the theater a lot. My mom was big into Broadway, so I saw a lot of Broadway shows, which was very cool. I saw Alfred Molina play Tevye oh, cool. in, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof. One of my favorite memories ever was my grandmother going, he's not Jewish, <laughs> which he is. Sorry, Alfred. She's gone. Don't worry. <laughs> um, um, Teaneck was weird. Like One thing I that always sticks out when Teaneck people talk to each other is like, Every other town in the world, the cheerleaders are cool and the color guard are lame. Mm -hmm. In t it is opposite. Nobody cares about the cheerleaders, but the, the flag twirlers, they don't even call them the color guard, were um, award-winning dancers. Like, like always. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's like they, you know, they led the football team out. And, like, people, people showed up as much to watch them do what they did as they did to watch the football team. And we were really good a couple times. Yeah. A couple years I was in school. I had a friend that... Um, went to a high school where the marching band was kind of like that, <laughs> you know, where, where the marching band was just like, they'd win national tournaments and people went to football games to watch the marching band at halftime and before the game. Um, and that's like, dude, my school existed because it was a public school, but like all of the other programs existed because football made so much fucking money. So pine top football was a big deal. Yeah. Blue Ridge high school football, man. We, <laughs> we, yeah, I could once again go on. We won, we won state one year when I was in high school, but it was like my my call, high school coach, like in his head coaching career, won like thirteen state championships, something like that. Ours never won one. Sorry, Dennis. Dennis Hack never won championship with us. I I recall maybe he won one at a smaller school before he came to Teaneck, but we were never able to bring him one. And he had some. We I. Just because we weren't going to talk about high school football. I played with some friggin' legends. Really? Legends of New Jersey football. Legends of professional football. Uh, Tom Bahali of the Kansas City Chiefs was a teammate of mine. Oh, wow. Uh, sweetest guy in the world. Um, Lance Ball, who wasn't uh, as big of a pro. He was a pro, but he wasn't quite as big. He also went to Teaneck High, and I've known him since I'm eight years old and got to watch him run all over the field. Uh, Rashad White, one of the greatest running backs of all time in New Jersey. He didn't even make it to college ball, unfortunately, but tore up teams, 275 yards against state-ranked teams. And yeah. It, and uh, I, I could go on, not that like any of this matters. It's just like, I still find inspiration in those guys. Totally. I don't do sports anymore. Like, if I don't know if you post a picture of me with this, but like, I'm a chubby Jewish guy. Like, I'm not running anywhere, but I still think about like, Bullet, Lance, Tamba, and uh, there's other guys too. There's always this guy, Phil Wonski. 
Mm-hmm. He was uh, the center and the the middle linebacker my freshman year, and he also like straight A student. Got into Princeton, president of the student council. He ended up going to Rucker School of Engineering instead of Princeton, but which is also like very prestigious. Yeah, and to this day, his number is part of most of my secret passwords. Really, and I can say that out loud because like it's not the whole secret password, and also like you'd have to know what his number was. Yeah, totally. But yeah, like I literally still think of his number as like a thing I can't forget and will always remember. That's uh, that's awesome. It's especially because like in our, I find my relationship with sports uh, is like definitely a little more tenuous than it was when I was in high school. In that, like, I I see a lot of the disadvantages that came along because I focused solely on sports for so long, and also just the culture around, like you know, just like toxic masculinity or whatnot. But there's also like the good things I learned from it. Those it outweighs the rest of it. At least I believe for me, because I don't think I'm a very toxic person. <laughs> I didn't really fully buy into that shit. I did kind of, but like, um, but it didn't have. I don't. I don't know. But like, sorry. Then you talk to a lot of people in like music and whatnot. It's it's fuck the football players, fuck the jocks, you know. And I like get that. I understand. I get that. I but. actually find though with the whole like I don't know about sports ball. That's not for me. There's actually a lot of like inherent like prejudice and almost to an extent racism there where it's like a lot of those like artsy kids are like oh football is so lame and those are the kids who teased me in school and i am being very general but you find a lot of people where the only way they're getting out of a bad situation is through the military or sports Uh you know what i mean so so go tell a kid who who came up really hard but was an amazing basketball player that what he does doesn't matter you know and there is the Professional sports teams are robbing the cities they live in 100%. Totally. Teams steal more from the cities than the cities get from the teams. That being said, I know people from New Orleans who said when the when they brought that Super Bowl home after Katrina, it was the biggest fucking thing in the world to the entire city, and it really mattered to them. And so, yeah, I the, the Saints take too much from New Orleans. I don't know what their deal is, but I know they take too much. Yeah. But bringing them that Super Bowl meant hope and all that stuff to all the people there, you know? And I don't... I try not to subscribe too much to this kind of thinking, like basketball teams bringing hope or anything like that. But who am I to tell someone that they didn't? Yeah, but and also it's like I'm really fortunate enough that my every my day to day life is super interesting, even though a lot of it consists of me just hanging out and like sending emails that don't get replies. I get to (laughs) do book tours, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. Emails and no one's going to reply. Yeah. (laughs) And I. But I, I feel really fortunate. I, I live a very cool life. I'm on the road quite a bit. I got a sweet dog like that. You know, it's like I I've, I don't know. I'm really I, I do a lot of things that like I've been to the Grand Canyon. We were talking. You've been a few times. I've been to the Grand Canyon like 15 plus times. Yeah. You know, and like I, I would take people to the Grand Canyon for their first time on tour. And it's like or the Redwoods. And that's like my favorite thing to do. Everyday people Anyone don't who's never been to the Grand Canyon. It truly is one of those things where you see it on TV and you're like, what's so great about it? And then you actually see it with your eyes. Worth the trip. Get off your ass. It's unbelievable. It's fucking crazy. But like some people will. No, you're good. Some people will. Like my dog's seen more states than a lot of Americans will ever see. My dog's been to the Grand Canyon, like to the edge of the the canyon. You know, Um, a lot of people don't experience that. But what they do experience is like the fucking Red Sox winning the World Series after a hundred year drought, you know, and like and for the whole dismissiveness of the whole sports ball thing to me, like is really like, so you're just like discounting that person's kind of like not entire existence, but like one of the things that makes like brings them joy. 
you know, and you're just discounting it. It's like because like you don't get it. That's just like, yeah, that is I think it's just a real shitty attitude. I mean, I also think a lot more people still engage in the sports they love than a lot of folks realize. Like, yeah, totally. Guys who sit at home and watch baseball after the game, a lot of times they go to the park and play with their buds. Like they're playing softball, they're playing, they're playing hardball, and you got singer songwriters who don't leave their house unless they have a show. And I'm not trying to disparage them. It's just that's you touched on a thing that I really don't like, which is the sports ball. I don't get it. You know, who's Tom Brady kind of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, the dismissiveness. I I made a, a video earlier this year because I lost a bet to my um my brother in law. He's a big Packers fan, and the Packers beat the Cardinals, and the Cardinals were like on a nine game winning streak. And so um I told him that if if I lost I would write a song about the Packers. And so <laughs> I, I wrote a song about Aaron Rodgers and his whole off season drama and whatnot, and I made a little video of it, like music video and I was pretty stoked about it. It was like, it turned out really cool. At least I thought so. And uh, um, I was sending it to people and just trying to get it some momentum on YouTube. And I had a friend I sent it to whose response was sports ball. And I was like, well, it's also like songwriting, music production, video production. Like I put like a week's worth of work into all this that like I worked really hard on. But because you don't understand football, you're just like, fuck you. You know, and it's like, yeah, you didn't mean it. It's like what we started with. It's like, yeah, you didn't mean it that way, but like, it's really easy for me to take it that way because like, it's just the most dismissive thing you could have said to me, you know, for anyone who disparages fo- uh, sports and doesn't think there's a place for it uh, against the arts, please go check out the uh, Mega Ran record live 95, which dropped in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, last October, it dropped. We made Billboard. I have a Billboard plaque in my room from being an executive producer. I saw that on Instagram. That's fucking yeah. sick. Congratulations. Right. But that record was all about Raheem uh, Megaran, his relationship to basketball and how important basketball was to him, to hip-hop culture back in 1995. Uh, the, he chose that year, specifically the year Live 95 came out, the first big basketball video game. Mm-hmm. For anyone who's not aware, I'm Megaran's manager. He's a nerdcore rapper. Uh, he raps a lot about wrestling and video games and pop culture. And our last record, as I was saying, Live 95 is all about basketball and his relationship to basketball and what basketball meant to the hood he comes from. You mm-hmm. know, from He's from Philadelphia, and it's it inspired him to do, to, or it's partially what inspired him to be the man he is now, which totally. is like a positive motivational rapper. He doesn't use profanity in 99% of his songs. I think there's like one or two with a bad word. Um, and he raps about positive things and being positive mm-hmm. and... He was a former teacher. He still reaches out to kids regularly. Uh, he we just finished a project with the Boys and Girls Club, the Jerry Colangelo branch in Phoenix. He's based in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, but yeah, that's a whole Billboard charting record. Which, if we're you know going to start pointing at like you know pointing things out to legitimize things, Billboard's a pretty good one mm-hmm. about sports and how important sports is in Megaran's case to himself and to the black community and to to a city. You totally know, the it's really interesting because you you called him nerdcore rapper and like a lot of the people that i th- that would co- say sports ball or whatever would consider themselves nerds you know not all of them but it's like it's like there's crossover there's you know and like it's way i don't know and uh, we're probably getting too deep into this specific thing but like it's much why can't you just say like hey that's not really for me <laughs> <laughs> you know like that's I do. Yeah, exactly. I think there's uh, very much a dismissive streak. And also, 
Uh, there's been this shift in the world uh, that we all saw with the Marvel movies, and it started a little bit before them, where kind of nerds have a lot more power than they did before, but ultimately it's just a different kind of white man judging uh-huh. what's good and what's bad. Totally. And so nerds, to- and I have I have buddies who like, uh, I have a specific friend, uh, I don't think he'd appreciate me naming him, who like, we talk, we spend a lot of time <laughs> We don't have to name names. Well, yeah, he's also yeah. like, it's not even a matter of like, he's nobody. He's not famous or anything. He just wouldn't like his name out there that yeah. way. But um, yeah, we talk about that all the time, how nerds kind of got a hold of this like social capital and are like beating everybody down with it. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and uh, Mega Rand is not that way. Let me, let me start there. He's also not a white man. But um, yeah, yeah, it's it is. Uh, I mean, and I, I've, I'm guilty of it, like the whole hipster culture when I was in like late high school and college of like, like kind of being withholding with music, not wanting people to find out about certain bands and whatnot, because I would love a band. And the next thing I know, all like the more typical jocks that I played football with are all like really digging rise against and going to their shows all the time. And I'm like kind of annoyed by that. And then, but eventually I, as a musician, I start being like, Oh, I mean, music's meant to be shared. Like what, so you a know, a person can be an anarchist and a linebacker. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Someone can, these particular people were not, are probably more likely cops than, uh, than not. Listen, you know, you gotta love when a cop. I've had a few cops tell me that they're probably more anarchists than me, and it's like, yo, like, I don't even know what to say to you. It's not even worth calling you stupid for saying it. Like, so, like, how <laughs> yeah. otherworldly ridiculous. Like, how could you say something so absolutely bananas and <laughs> think that I'm not gonna just think less of you? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the thing. It's like not even worth insulting you because, like. I couldn't think any less of you. Oh yeah, I it the one of the, my favorite things about getting older. There's a lot of really cool things about getting older. There's a lot of really not as cool things about getting older, but one of the really cool things is being better and better about being like I'm not going to waste my time engaging with like certain bullshit and so like not responding to internet comments or like someone who I had blocked on like Instagram months ago or maybe years ago, I guess wasn't blocked on Facebook and then commented on something this week. And I just, without even engaging, just blocked her. Just like, I'm not even like, I'm not even going to have that conversation with you. Cause you've already proven to me that you're either like, you're either just really, really ignorant, dangerously ignorant, or you're like a borderline white supremacist and either one of them I don't have time for like, and like fuck off. Social media is also the downfall of humanity. Uh, I do think there's an infinite amount of people absolutely showing their true colors all the time on social media, which is probably an okay thing. And there's probably some other good things happening, but at the end of the day, social media is a net loss for humanity. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I love my Instagram at Team X Jeff Moses, <laughs> and uh, I, I like taking pictures. I like sharing my pictures, <clears throat> but social media has become about so much more than that. Yeah, and it's toxic. It's about... absolutely toxic, and it's turned us all into zombies. Yeah, it's. I mean, the cell phone just in general is just. I've like started to make it a point to try and like. It just when I take banjo out in the morning to the park to throw the ball, I just don't bring my phone with me. Just so I can at least during that part of the day just be in the moment with my dog, um, you know. And it's like it's just because like I I get so I just spend my whole time just like sending emails that don't responses or like staring into the like doom trap that is Instagram. I can't speak for everybody and how they find joy, and I wouldn't try to. But I can say that I'm never having as good a time as I can be if my phone is out. Yeah. Period. 
that's at a concert, that's at a football game, that's at a wrestling event. That I, I, I'm not a big wrestling fan. I go with Mega Ran sometimes. <laughs> um, anywhere I am, if my phone is in my hand, I'm taking a photo. Like, take it out, take one picture, remember the moment. I'm probably having a great time. Uh-huh. If I'm like video, like taking a full video or taking a bunch of pictures, I'm trying to entertain myself because I'm not yeah. having a good time. Oh yeah. And it's just hard for me to believe that all the people who have to take a picture of every little thing they do are having a good time. Totally. I, I agree with you. And yesterday, last night, I went out for some for a friend's birthday. And because I don't really drink and these friends particularly like to party, I was like, I'm going to eat some mushrooms. And like some friend had left some mushroom chocolates here. And I was like, OK, so I ate like what he had left and then took a couple these capsules I have. So, I mean, I should have known. I probably, and I ate an edible. I was just like going for it. <laughs> Proud of you, Charlie. Yeah, it was it was um but I show up I ride my bike to this bar. What was it? Can we pause? Yeah. Alright, cool. I'll have pee is why. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that sure. okay? So uh, I rode my bike to this bar and uh What bar? Ontario bar on Grand Street. Alright. Um I like that place. I hadn't been there I hadn't been there in like a long time. Probably like five years, honestly. And uh I get there and I'm just like I'm just tripping way harder than I planned on, you know, like, like shit's like moving and, and I'm like really feeling it. And normally when I eat mushrooms before I go out, it's more just to like get a little loose. And, but I had like the best time ever. And I felt like part of it is cause usually when I'm like, part of why I used to drink so much is cause I'm like socially like, um, anxious. I think that's why most people drink a lot. Yeah. And I, so I would stare at my phone all the time like when i don't drink i'm hanging out with people i'm just like looking at my phone a lot and i'm not really doing anything i'm just like it's just like a nervous tick and because I, last night i was like like i looked at my phone and it was just like snakes you know it's just like well, i don't want to deal with that right now i didn't even understand it that i just was like sitting there and just having great conversations with everyone like dancing to the music just having a great time and i'm like oh this is like this is i don't know i feel like i had a much better time because i wasn't staring at my phone the whole time I've had my phone drag me out of just one too many, like, completely cathartic experiences where I'm just having a great fucking time. And I decided to check my phone for no real reason. You know, there's no reason to believe there's an emergency. Everyone I need to contact is probably around me. And I'm just, like, checking my phone. And I think a lot, there is a bit of, like, we've convinced ourselves we're worried we're going to miss out on some sort of emergency if we're not, like, paying attention to our phones. But, like, our parents used to leave the goddamn house and that's it. They, yeah. they would check the messages when they got home. And so it's like certain things that we've convinced ourselves are the end of the world truly aren't. Yeah. Both of my parents are dead. Uh, I kind of got a chance to say goodbye to my mom, but not really. My father just got found dead in an apartment. Oh, damn. Uh, he had a stroke in his apartment, not an apartment. Oh. And um, <clears throat> yes, it sucks. It's earth shattering. It's crazy. But regardless, like finding out in the moment, like even if you're like, yes, you want to know. But there's even to a certain extent, if you're having a cathartic experience and your parent passed, like you still might want to finish that cathartic experience. Like you just immediate access to information is fucking us up. I, I might yeah. not be that's that's what I was getting at, and I don't think I was going the best way of explaining. No, it. No, I 100 percent agree yeah. with you. I think, uh, um, and it's like to the point where everything has become everything shifted to where it's so relied upon the immediate information in a way. But it's like. But because of it, nothing of it is like really quality. It's like how I was talking to you about my life earlier. Like I, I do so much the podcast and touring and playing shows and I'm trying to write a record with my band. I'm also trying to write a solo record and, you know, like doing all kinds of stuff. 
That's something I've never understood about you songwriters, like the whole solo record versus with the band thing. And that that's Scott Sturgeon with Leftover Crack versus Scott Sturgeon Solo or, uh-huh. you know, you, Charles Ellsworth versus Charles Ellsworth and the Space Force Deserters and like even Springsteen. You know, he's got Springsteen and he's got Springsteen in the E Street Band and it's just like it's still just Springsteen, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. But I mean, the band, the Space Force Deserters is like a new thing and we're still trying to figure out if like that's just going to be its own thing. And then Charles Ellsworth is just going to be its thing, you know, and then we will figure out how to tour maybe as like a package thing. Uh, But it's just because like right now with this specific record that we're working on, um, like my bass player, Jared's like writing some like half of the songs, you know, they're not very long hair. Yeah. Yeah. Very (laughs) long hair. And he's he's a great songwriter and he, he plays in a band called Grandpa Jack and he's like one of the main like they all collaborate but he'll come up with like a lot of the song ideas and uh and so we're we're trying like but they do a lot of different like time signature changes and it's like it's not stoner metal but it's in that like heavy rock stoner metal vibe and so what we're doing is trying to take more of like a uh, it's like a little bit more pop music but not pop you know just like pop songwriting like the beatles were pop i guess um but anyways long it's like i would feel weird putting my name on the the name of the band when like i didn't even write half the songs you know or like we worked on them together but like and i know a lot of and jared doesn't even fucking care you know he's like whatever like you know as long as people know that like i'm credited as a songwriter i don't care i don't want to be the front man you know so <clears throat> I don't know. We're trying to figure that out. I think Space Force Deserters sounds cool as an end, to be honest. Like as I its think, own. I think Charles Ellsworth and the Space Force Deserters sounds a little cooler than just the Space Force Deserters. Yeah. And I will say, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, they have excellent T-shirts. Oh, Pick yeah. Pick up that, that Charles Ellsworth black T-shirt with the uh, Space Cowboy on it. I oh, love yeah. That shirt. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's... Uh... I'm going to have to give credit to Mark Ricks, my partner at Burrow Baracho Records, for... <laughs> designing that because he's he's the mind behind a lot of the or he's the designer behind a lot of the merch like we'll both come up with ideas but he he's the one that's like really good at photoshop and illustrator (laughs) uh merch is like one of the most fun things of being in this industry like me and mega rand will spend hours on the phone talking about like new merch ideas and stuff we want to do and Uh uh-huh Sometimes it's cool. Sometimes it goes over very well, and sometimes it super backfires. And yeah. you wind up with a hundred T-shirts that nobody wants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something cool he just did that we uh, so he just went on tour. We just did a West Coast tour, and he the Live ninety five record was one of our biggest records. So he did uh, like uh, he did basketball team logos on the t-shirts but kind of changed them up to fit himself more we did oh cool seattle portland san francisco uh phoenix uh san antonio and atlanta and there was a boston one too and uh the the seattle one went over super great it was the old green and yellow seattle supersonics oh the supersonics logo. oh that was and such next a cool to the logo. space needle he had uh, on that on like the sign the cityscape he had his Mega Buster, like the Mega Man arm cannon. Uh-huh. So that was like sitting there on the skyline. And it says Seattle Super Miracles. And that one, to go with the tour, was called the Generation of Miracles Tour. And uh, that one went over very well. We sold a bunch of them. It was great. San Francisco, a Golden State-themed one with the little... Uh, with The bridge? It, not with... It, whatever they're... It didn't go over as well, is the point. Oh, really? Yeah. And it, we, we, it's... 
it's, it's 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 interesting seeing what our fans are interested in buying and what they're not. And we have a lot of guesses as to why people didn't care for the like like the Seattle one better than like the San Francisco one. Also, the Boston one didn't sell very well. At is all. it location? Do you have like a better fan base in Seattle, or is it like kind of comparable in, in both places? Pacific Northwest is his territory. Like we do okay. extremely well everywhere in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, cool. We also do very well here. We do very well in New York City. And you Brooklyn. said he's based in Phoenix based now? Based in Phoenix, Arizona. I didn't realize that. Is this, um, well, my whole music career as a professional, as even someone who could think about working as a professional in music, started in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, sorry, let me get back to um, <laughs> We decided that we're going to smoke weed and drink coffee during this interview because we're better at that. Um, I don't smoke weed. <laughs> um, but... <coughs> But yeah, please. I've seen it. <laughs> Tell me about how your music career started. That's like how Jeff and I met. It was wild. We're um, the band and I, the Space Force Deserters, and I are playing a show in uh, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn this... Music Kitchen for TJO presents. Yeah, and uh, welcome home show from tour. Yeah, we were got back from our tour last fall, and Jeff was working the door. And you played with some kids, right? Yeah, I played with a band <laughs> called Samsara, and they were, were crazy. They were great. They were very good, and they had a good, really good draw. But they were like young. They were like either in high school or just out of high school. Well, everyone brought at least two people because mom and dad came. Yep. Throw in Susie's sister, and we had a packed house. Oh, I used to draw. My high school band drew better than I'd still draw after 15 years of fucking. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like, yeah, so Charles played a song called my. It's called Miami or Miami Arizona. Miami Arizona. He played a song called Miami Arizona, and I immediately lit up because I used to throw a music festival. I still do. We had to cancel COVID and stuff uh, in Miami, Arizona, which is just a town that like. I don't think I'd be insane to say under a million people have heard of the town of Miami, Arizona. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's there are probably less than 5,000 people that live in Miami. I think it's significantly less than that. Well, I always count, like, Globe and, like... Well, Globe's huge, though. Globe is a city. Globe's a big city, but Not it's, a, like... I big, mean, big city for out there. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah. Globe's I mean, about the size of Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And Miami's... Like, Rochester has an airport. Okay. Uh, Globe is about the size of um, Snurling, Ohio. <laughs> Yeah, Snurling sounds about right. I was going to say... Uh, um, Snurling, Indiana. Yeah. Right? Or is it Ohio? I, I don't, oh, I don't know that town. Exactly. We don't even... That's how small this is. <laughs> yeah, and Miami is just like a... I Where I would stop, like, to get gas sometimes. And uh, it's like at the on the edge of town, like past Globe. Nobody... It's a, it's a... Sorry. It's a very small town. And so I play this song and Jeff's like, what the fuck do you know about Miami, Arizona? <laughs> So we just kind of hit it off, and apparently you went to school in Arizona, or how did you end up in Phoenix? My best friend Ben moved out to, to Tempe, and another good friend of, uh, of mine, EJ, moved to Atlanta. <clears throat> and me and Mo, me and a good friend of mine, Mo, were like close to both of them. We both wanted to get out of Jersey. We were tired of being there. It was time to make a change. And we mm -hmm. literally flipped a coin. We were either going to move to Atlanta and hang with EJ, move to Arizona and hang with Ben. And you were like 18 at this point? How old were you? Mm, 20. 19 or 20. Okay, so you've been out of high school a little Arizona, bit? Yeah. Okay. And flip that coin, Arizona wins. Mo ends up backing out. Uh, he is now serving our country as uh, the only useful federal employee, a mailman. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's helping a lot of people. That's, that's, a, that's a good gig. Not sarcasm. Love the fucking post office. Oh, the post service is 
is they talk about like what's necessary for a free and open democracy and a like fucking post, a post office that isn't fucking corrupt and doesn't go through your shit unless they're supposed to like yeah necessary i also i love uh postcards i make and sell and collect postcards uh, you can find me on instagram dream city postcards and uh yeah i turn my photos into postcards the ones i really like i love stamps i like to buy the cool stamps when i go to the post office i'll get you know i remember the lunar landing ones were really cool oh, sick. uh right now i have snow otters which are very cute not quite so cool uh, i've gotten like i had marvin gay stamps those were rad oh, dope. and the actual the stamp book it looked like a record sleeve which mm-hmm. was really cool uh so yeah i love the post office and so we flipped that coin Arizona wins. I go out to Arizona. I start my educational career at Mesa Community College. And uh, that's where I played in the state championship game. Nice football field, man. We, yeah. got a, we had a great field out there. The team was trash the whole time I was there. I recall having good basketball and decent baseball. There was also a, a softball pitcher whose name escapes me, but they called her the Rocket, and she was incredible. She wound up playing at BYU Hawaii softball. Oh, cool. And, I don't know where she is in life, but she was really cool. Like it was really I great. Mean, like, if she was a Mormon at BYU, she's probably married and has children now. Yeah. If she was just like an athlete at BYU, she could be doing anything. Pretty sure she was a Mormon. Mesa has a huge Mormon yeah, population. Yeah, I grew up Mormon in Pine Top. Really? Yeah. So yeah. you only drank for a little while then. Well, I drank from. <laughs> I quit being Mormon at about age fifteen. Drank for the first time at age. Did your family? Are you? If you, and also this is your podcast, but you don't got to talk about it. Are you incommunicado or? Yeah, we all we all kind of walked away at the same time. Oh, the whole family. Walked yeah, away. yeah, oh, okay. yeah. It was kind of really lucky. My stepdad never was involved with it when my they got married. I've said this on the podcast before, I think. But like when they got you married, can be married to a serious Mormon and not be a Mormon. Yeah, he just was like, I love you, I love your kids, I want to be like your husband and their father, but I'm not going to church with you. Like, I'm not doing that shit. I just had a few buddies when I lived there who they, uh, one of them left the church and his family never talked to him again. He had to like literally, uh, I, I, I'm i going to use the word kidnap, or I don't, he didn't kidnap the girl, but like he had to like go get his girlfriend away from her family kind of thing. Yeah. And she went willingly, it wasn't, they were of the same age, nothing weird. But they had to like escape their like. That's crazy what Miami, families. Arizona is pretty much about. That's what that <laughs> song's about is like really religious parents like overbearing on the girl. And like I think of it as like abortions illegal and they're trying to run to California to get an abortion and just to like like because they're like in love and want to run away. But they don't want that life. You know, uh, I mean, we veered so far away from Miami, just going back to the festival, which is called Miami Loco, which. Charles was booked for this year and unfortunately had to cancel because of COVID, but he still got to play a pretty neat show, the that, opening of the Cat Army show. Uh, yeah, we, oh, we, we, it was a great show in Miami. <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's an art space called Miami Artworks. Uh, and the festival, is, we take over the whole town. We bring bands mostly from uh, Phoenix, Tucson, Prescott, and um, uh, uh, Flagstaff. Oh, yeah. And uh, as well as, you know, locals when we can get them, when people are interested. We collaborated with the Oak Flats Reservation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I was still living in Phoenix when we did this. I think it became a regular thing. I just, I would help book, but not always go out there. Uh It was just a great event where we took over an entire old mining town. And it started, we got a lot of resistance from the locals. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And then once they realized that for like a weekend, the town was packed and the hotels had people in them and the bed and breakfasts had people in them and the restaurants were, were happening. Yeah. And they're not fighting us so much. Not a lot of tourism in Miami, Arizona. Like what, what would you Miami go there Loco, for? Yeah. And there was, they also do an event called Boomtown. You're asking why I was there or no, I'm just oh. saying like, like, of course the town would be stoked about this once they realize like, Oh, like there's not a lot of reasons why the town gets full of people. It's not really a tourist attraction. And so, yeah, I watched that that event grow from like a little thing at just the Miami Artworks to taking over the park there in town and having the streets, uh, having vendors in the streets to closing down streets to build stages on the streets of Miami, Arizona. Cool. And like we were uh, at one point, things because of COVID fell apart. What are you going to do? We had an AJJ ready to play. Oh, cool. Andrew Jackson Jihad, who they came up under Michael 23, the guy who owns Uh the space. you know, he was a, a ever-present figure in the Phoenix art scene, and they were a band just trying to make it out there. Totally. So What's up, played... Michael23, if you're listening? Love you, Michael. Yeah. Um, good dude. I'm, in, I'm always in good contact with Michael. We talk six or seven times a year. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say he's definitely a hero of mine. Cool. You yeah. know, and it's like he's a hero who I was able to get close to and not lose all respect for. Yeah. Because I very much find when you meet your heroes, some of them turn into real people, and that sucks. Yeah, yeah. Like every day, trying to not be that person, and not that I'm someone's hero, but just like think about like if 15 year old me met me, like he'd be stoked on the life I'm living. But am I like being kind to people and treating people the way that he would expect me to treat people? You know what I mean? I am a better human being now than 15 year old Jeff was, and I can say that with full confidence. Like I said, Cameron was God when I was in high school. (laughs) God. I'm not super familiar with Cameron. Remind me. What um his whole thing is being hugely egotistical, oh, talking yeah. about how cool he is. I mean, Dipset was very much involved in like Okay. I remember Cameron now. Now one of my favorite things, he was on the Bill O'Reilly show. Bill O'Reilly says to Cameron, Cameron, you rap <laughs> about pimping and bitches. And Cameron goes, Pimping and bitches. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Bill fucking O'Reilly. Uh, him and Dame Dash just absolutely flamed him on his show. If you type in like Bill O'Reilly, Dame Dash, you'll get the video. It's so good. That's awesome. Is Bill O'Reilly still He's alive? Dead, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, he did die. So did Rush Limbaugh. Maybe only Rush. Rush died. Limbaugh's dead as fuck. <laughs> good. Yeah, because my new rule with drinking is like, I can't ever drink on home turf, or like if I'm on tour, I I don't drink on tour and I don't like drink in New York City, but. I do if I have the opportunity where I'm not in any of those things and I'm celebrating the death of an evil person. Mm. And when Rush Limbaugh died, I got drunk two nights in New Orleans. I have complicated feelings about celebrating bad things happening to people. Um, I think Rush Limbaugh dying is a net gain for humanity. I think his existence was horrendous and people like that just deserve the absolute worst. But supposedly he's a real human being that people cared about or something. No. I don't know. No. I mean, I... You just don't want to celebrate too hard at anybody's misfortunes. No, I don't. um, And I don't really do it beyond that. And it's not really... It's just my excuse to be able to die. It's like like there is some justice in the world. And so you get to have a couple beers. 
<laughs> you know, and I because they're like so often in this world, especially this society, there is you. no justice. There, like him dying wasn't justice because he got to die knowing in his heart that he was a Congressional Medal of whatever winner. And uh, even if Trump gave it to him, it was still the President of the United States handing him that. I guess he it's got not to justice, die at but the peak of his life. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's definitely not justice. But beloved by about half of the country, and you're know, given that medal that he'll be. I don't subscribe much to this horrendous garbage nation. No, I mean, but if you do, do he's in a place of honor for the rest of time. Like you're right, it's it's not justice, but it's still like at the like I mean, at the end of the day, we're all gonna die. And um, but just to take it back to Phoenix, you know Joe Arpaio, right? Uh huh. Twenty four years that man was sheriff, and they finally were able to find someone who could beat him after he'd gotten just beaten down by every possible thing. And you've got a lot of activists out there feeling like they want a victory. And it's like, no, you lost for 24 years. You got the, the shit kicked out of you for 24 years by this guy. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, that's I guess that's kind of like my reason in celebrating or not celebrating her, but like using it as an occasion to drink is because um, because like that's the only win we get sometimes is the fact that, well, that fucker's not going to live forever. You know what I mean? Like the society's so fucked that like there is never anything close to justice. And like the net gain we get as a society when Rush Limbaugh fucking kicks the bucket is like is the closest to justice we're going to get. And so it's like, yeah, I don't know. And for me, it was just like setting that like I didn't want to. I don't want to drink because I'm sad. That's why I can't drink because I'm celebrating the life of someone who I loved who passed. Cause like, that's the type of shit that just makes me a sad drunk and why I shouldn't drink all the time. But like, you know what I mean? I, it's whatever. I don't need to, it works for me. It's like led to me having drinks like twice a year. You know what I mean? And I think that's for me is like a healthy relationship to have with it. I don't have to worry about like I start drinking and I just keep drinking and it's like addictive in that way. Like I told you before, I don't really like it that much. It's just like a fun thing to do with people that I love once in a while. (laughs) So, yeah, professional career started in Phoenix. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) But, yeah, like actually, let's get back to that because this was a we didn't really get too deep in it. You moved to Phoenix. Um this is what I love about podcasting like this is where we really just tell like like one story while like going off on a million tangents. I moved to Phoenix. <laughs> I'm about 19. I'm living a regular college life. I immediately went to Mesa Community College. I thought I was going to study film. Did that for like a year, year and a half. Eventually, the buddy Ben actually, uh, after a year, the buddy Ben moved back to New York City and he's still here. He's uh, He teaches in the Cooney system and he uh, oh, cool. he's an architect. He does cool stuff. He moved back. I stayed out there. I was basically living a fairly regular college lifestyle until I discovered the Mesa Community College school paper. Okay. Uh, me and my buddy Matt were sitting at a smoking section on campus. Matt Schaefer, really good guy from Cincinnati. A girl walked up maybe complaining about something about the paper. I think she was the opinions editor at the time. Maybe they couldn't find enough writers. Like that, We got recruited. And so like we both were like, well, I'm not recruited exactly. Like we were both like, we, we could write about sports. You need sports writers. That sounds fun. Uh-huh. So me and him both became sports writers. And then he took it so seriously that he became sports editor. Cool. And then the next semester he stepped down and I took over the sports editor job. And from there, I realized I could use my credentials on the school paper to get free concert tickets. And so I was the sports editor and that was my job. And I got to cover some fun stuff, some big picture stuff. But also I had to go to like uh, basketball games and baseball games and football games for the school. But once I realized I could write in other sections and do the feature section, I I liked Flogging Molly at the time and they played... Tempe Beach Park every year. 
Uh-huh. So I got myself tickets to that, and I went and covered the Tempe Beach Park Flog and Molly show, and that was really cool. And then I, I think later that summer I covered, or no, then later that summer I went to Bonnaroo. Okay. I went with all my buddies to Bonnaroo, and did you get a press pass to Bonnaroo too? I did not. I just I bought a ticket and uh-huh. I went. It wouldn't have even occurred to me to do that to even start to know how to contact Bonnaroo that way. That yeah, way and I don't know if they'd life. give one to like a community college. Frankly, writer. I think they would, and I'll I'll, t- I'll get to that. You know, uh-huh. That kind of thing in a second because I have gotten into those. Oh, cool! All right, so, so I go to Bonnaroo and it's just like, and there was like, there's a Bonnaroo. Have you been to Bonnaroo? I don't do music festivals because I'm broke because of music. Understood. <laughs> uh, I was like, you know, 23 at the time. I was selling. I was involved in the the retail sale of a select amount of marijuana. Yeah, I mean, and, um, everybody's got to make a living somehow. Yeah, yeah, what do you mean, though? Like, yeah. yeah, I wasn't gonna work. Well, yeah, fucking <laughs> so, capitalism can get fucked. You know? And this is years ago. This is a very long time yeah. ago. So anyway, I had a bunch of money in my pocket. My buddies were going to Bonnaroo, and I, they'd gone years past. I'd never been, and I really wanted to go. Uh, it didn't even matter who was playing. Like, I, I remember who was playing, but I was the only act I really remember being super excited for was Big Boy from Outkast. Oh, cool. Because his solo record, Sir Lusses Left Foot, the son of Chico Dusty, had just dropped, and I loved it. Yeah, and I remember... I was like excited to hear that he was performing. I wanted to like. He played with a full band. He put oh, on cool. a great show. Our other buddies went to see Lil. Like he played at the same time as Lil Wayne. Me and Ben, this guy I've referenced, we went to see him. Our other buddies went to Lil Wayne. They came back disappointed. We came back so stoked. It was such a great show by Big Boy. Uh, and of course, we really were hoping Andre would show up. He definitely didn't. But they played a few Outcast songs. Sleepy Brown was there, mm-hmm. and it was very cool. I've seen Big Boy. I've seen Big Boy, Big Grams, Big Boy DJ set, and I've seen Outcast. I'm a very big fan of Big Boy. Oh, sick. That's awesome. But anyway, so I go to Bonnaroo, and there's a Bonnaroo paper. I don't remember what it's called anymore, but there's actually like a, a every morning a paper comes out that's like describing what happened the day before with pictures of the sets and stuff like that. And it was just kind of like all bets were off. Like I was working in music. Whatever I did with my life was going to involve music. That's uh-huh. what I wanted to do. Fuck the sports editor shit. Came back. Uh, the editor in chief became this guy Ben Garcia, who was another great friend of mine to this mm-hmm. day. One of the most amazing photographers you'll ever find. Cool. If you want to check him out, Ben E. Period G. Period Photography uh, is a good way to find him. He works in the marijuana industry now in Arizona. He make he builds huge grows and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Nice. And but also just the best photographer one of the best photographers i've ever met i don't want to say the absolute best because i've met some good ones yeah um cool and so i told him i want to be the features editor and that's what i want to do because features was the section that could cover music and cover art and cover that kind of thing and every once in a while i had to do a jack mullins uh i really hope he's still alive i haven't heard from him in years he was our advisor Mm -hmm. and uh he just taught me so much and dealt with me at the time, I, I everything was unfair because I was an idiot and I was 23. But like looking back, it's like that man was so even-handed with me, even to a point of showing me favoritism. Really? With some of the things he let me get away with and didn't I didn't get in trouble for, and even did get in trouble for, but not as much as I should have. Uh-huh. So just a great newspaper advisor who taught me an unbelievable amount about the newspaper industry. Uh, so yeah, I, I told them I want to be the features editor and that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I started covering local music when I could and bigger concerts. And every, oh, so what I was saying is every once in a while, Jack would make me. Obviously, at the time, I was like, I want to focus on what I want to focus on. But he was trying to, like, make me a more well-rounded journalist. Mm-hmm. So, like, go write about a restaurant. Go, you know, go write about the art, uh, whatever art programming is going on on campus. Because uh-huh. your job is to cover campus. Something totally. Something constantly had to remind me of. Yeah. 
And I still got away with great stuff. I got to go see Blink-182. Uh, I got into, just in, in the case of like getting into big stuff, uh, Penny Arcade Expo. One of the biggest, um, like one of the biggest video game uh, industry events in the country, like seventy thousand people. I got, I got tickets to that through the Mesa Legend. Oh, cool! It sounds awesome. Yeah, and throw, so through working with the Mesa Legend, I eventually got recruited to work for a magazine called Modern Times Magazine through a guy mm-hmm. named John Guzan. He was formerly works for Gannett, the Arizona Republic, and you know that that situation. Uh, and then he decided to open his own thing. He found me through Occupy Phoenix. In fact, I was a big part of Occupy, and uh, he hired me on to be his music and arts editor for a while. From there, I got recruited to the Phoenix New Times uh, by an editor there named Ben Leatherman. I we were sitting outside of a venue called Hollywood Alley. You ever been to Hollywood Alley in Mesa? No, I haven't. Hollywood Alley's gone now. One of its things I remember it's most known for motherfucking public enemy played Hollywood Alley once. Really? For this event called the Blunt Club. That's the longest running monthly hip hop event, I believe, in the country right now. Really? Uh, the public yeah, enemy. Public performed enemy there. played the Blunt Club or cool. played the Blunt Club, which was being done at Blunt Club was like an event. It wasn't a place. And it was at this place, Hollywood Alley. But we were there, it was like the closing. Hollywood Alley was closing, and that's what we were there for. And I'm standing outside having a cigarette. I probably bummed it off of Ben, Ben Leatherman. Mm-hmm. And he where he's uh, he was like playing coy with me. You know, talking about some of my stories. You know, we'd love to have some of that stuff in the new times. And it's like, what the hell did he just say to me? Uh-huh. I can step up from modern times to new t- like new times is the the village voice of Phoenix. Like yeah. it's actually New Times Media owned Village Voice when it closed. Really? Yeah. So New I Times owned that. a bunch of New Times like we were the flagship paper of a entire Alt Weekly conglomerate. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and he recruited me to go work, go work for New Times, and I got to go be a writer for New Times and get into all sorts of cool shows and concerts. And I used my credentials from Modern Times, I believe, to get into Firefly Music Festival once. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I got to go see uh, who played that one. Uh, the Foo Fighters were, were the sick. big headliner at that one. Not my favorite band, but they. I remember the Pretty Lights was there. And, uh-huh. Uh, Sleigh Bells, and I have a poster from it. <laughs> I yeah. think Weezer played that year. It was a good year. Yeah, and, and like <laughs> I, I'm not the biggest Foo Fighters fan, uh, but I just can appreciate just a band that just like stands for just rock and roll and probably puts on a fucking hell of a show. If I were a Foo Fighters fan, that would have been my favorite show of my entire life. Really? I get it. I don't. It's not my thing, but yeah. I totally get it. It seems real and pure and. And self-aware and like he's just or maybe unself-aware I don't know he doesn't he's not worried about embarrassing himself he's not worried about trying too hard or caring too much he's like this is what I love doing and I think it comes off as sort of saccharine especially like a lot of their songs are are saccharine uh-huh. but like if you're into that I see why and I see what people are so impressed with I'm sure people feel that way about Springsteen and I will defend Springsteen to the death totally know? Yeah, it took me a long time to really like get Springsteen. And I think partially like if you just grow up on certain in certain parts of the East Coast, New Jersey, exactly. Like uh You are you, issued born to run at birth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's just like ingrained in you in a way. Um whereas like I didn't get exposed to Springsteen until I was like working for this dude Joe in my like I was like twenty three, twenty four. Um, he was like, we were filming a, a short film at my friend's apartment and Joe was like painting this, this apartment that was like in an old Victorian house. And I just like was smoking a cigarette, struck up a conversation with him. And like the next week was working painting jobs with him. And he was from Boston and loved Bruce Springsteen. 
and that's where I, my first introduction to like really listening to Springsteen, and that was when my first record came out, so like ten years ago. Arizona has a huge Springsteen uh, population. Like people love Springsteen, and, and I believe it. It's like area. working man's music. It's funny because a lot of people that dig Springsteen in Arizona probably wouldn't dig his politics. No, uh, wouldn't. I think that wasn't really a part of what he did for so long. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of was, but it just wasn't so blatant that it's at a time. Yeah. Well, it's like people telling Jason Isbell all the time to like, hey, stick to the music and not the politics. I'm like, do you read the fucking lyrics? Like, come on. Like, That's the new thing for these fucking idiots. Somebody just tweeted that like Star Trek goes where it's never gone before. Woke politics. And it's like, have you ever watched Star yeah, Trek? Yeah, I'm they not even a Trekkie. They're the first people to do a billion different things. Exactly. I'm not even a Trekkie at the all. The first interracial on screen kiss. The I, first like exactly. lesbian characters. The first just everything down the line. Like all this stuff. Uh, giving giving uh, women big parts on the show before any other show was doing that kind of thing. And, like, all of this is, like, super regular low-bar shit. But yeah. still, like, of course they're going to continue pushing the envelope. Totally. I, I mean, that's what I fucking hate so much about this, like, dumb, this ignorant conservative movement that seems like it's, I mean, it's been around my whole lifetime. Um, I don't even know if you call it a movement. It's just a it like a staple of it. when they recruited Reagan to run for president. Yeah, like around the time of Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Schlafly, like like before like before that, all most Americans were like, yeah, an abortion's like a procedure between a woman and her doctor, none of my business. And then Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Schlafly start like making it this Christian issue and making it a divisive issue, and then get the Christian right and Ronald Reagan and. Boom, it's been fucked ever since then. I mean, it's always been fucked, but, you know, genocide is, like, at the very root of what this country's always been. So, uh, but anyways. Uh, Back to me. <laughs> no, but what, what I was trying to say, I guess, is, uh, um, fuck, what was I trying to say? <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the fact that it's, like, the whole thing of making up a fucking issue that's non-existent, like, woke politics in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. And, like, people getting up in arms about it or, like, fucking dead babies getting aborted like right before they're born and shit like that it's like that doesn't fucking happen like and then people killing doctors over it when it's like i don't know it's it's they're just all controlled and led by lies and then they call me a fucking sheep it's like you fucking morons sorry anyways <laughs> worth pointing out just because it came up uh, uh ban on abortions after six weeks means a woman is two weeks late on her period or excuse me a Pregnant person is too yeah, late okay. on their period, so keep that in mind. Anybody who might have politics that don't agree with my own, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, six weeks like some some people don't even know they're pregnant and they're six weeks pregnant. Exactly. So, uh, but literally going back to me because the politics of the day are just like I just feel like I spent so much time talking about it. And it's just all like back to the phone thing. It's like my whole thing is either like escapism through reels on Instagram because it's just all this like, oh, fishing and skateboarding and then or just like just anger scrolling and trying to repost shit to my story as fast as possible to prove that the cops are pieces of shit. Yeah, it was you. I, I, now we're going into the politics of the day, but uh, you were the first one I saw who posted about the uh, possibility that a cop shot one of the kids in Nuvalde. Yeah, I don't know if that's true yet. We haven't found that out yet, but... ABC reported on it. I know that's I said possibility that it happened, not that it did happen. No, totally. I mean, they're not cooperating with the investigation at all anymore. That's so also strange. That's but also... I want to... Um, not talk about that yeah, right now. Exactly. That's not what this podcast is about, but I just want anyone listening, especially that, that might be from my past and more conservative than me. It's like, I'm not going to stop talking about this shit. Just so anyways...
I, uh, <laughs> in, in all of this and working in music and covering shows and, and writing for all of those different outlets, I also started, uh, I became an activist through Occupy Phoenix was the first time I really uh, dove into that arena and saw what being an activist was like. And I was definitely one of the, uh, one of the bigger organizers of that whole situation. There were like 10 of us who were in the like kind of inner circle of, mm -hmm. you know, making action decisions and deciding on what was really going to happen with the group. That became a big toxic mess as all activism groups tend to. Yeah. I leaned out more towards anarchism and started organizing with uh, some, some anarchists in Phoenix who I still, uh, still turn to for advice, politically speaking. And just to like, when I want someone who I feel like I can actually agree with to talk to, I, I reach out to them usually. Uh -huh. Uh, and they all came, a lot of them uh, considered themselves to be race trader anarchists. So they put a lot of their stock in fighting white supremacy. That was like the central uh, tenet of, of the sort of things that we I get in. behind that. Yeah. Like we were very much about fighting white supremacy. They, uh, especially as an organization in Phoenix, Arizona, that would, I mean, loosely, I mean, anywhere organization in the is, a, is a, well, for an anarchist yeah, like it's a, collective it's a or whatever, term, whatever is, the hell we yeah. Are. And they, there were certain people who were a lot more organized than I ever were. And I always heard the stories like back in the day what it was like shit like that. A lot of um, anarcho-indigenous collaboration, which was very important to us. A lot of um, pushing the envelope through, uh, through divisive and fanatical um, politics and uh -huh. ideas. Um, uh, Joel Olson was a big uh, influence on a lot. He wasn't a huge influence on me, but was a big influence on a lot of the people who influenced me. Uh -huh. And he was all about fanaticism. His last work, Joel Olson was an anarchist philosopher who worked at NAU. He was an adjunct professor, and he died under strange circumstances in London. Or no, no, no maybe not in London, definitely in Europe. I forget where, excuse me. His last work was going to be about fanaticism, which some friends of mine helped finish. Really, a chapter on fanaticism in what would be his last book. And remind me his his name. This this Joel Olson. Joel Olson is a professor at NAU. Was a professor. Was at NAU. yeah. Um, and uh, he wrote a very important book to to uh, some of the people I ran with found him a little too liberal for their taste. Mm -hmm. uh, but he wrote an important book called The Abolition of White Democracy, which I highly recommend anybody read. Yeah. Uh, regardless of where you're coming from on the political spectrum, if. I bet you if you're a Nazi piece of garbage, you can you know, sharpen your, your thoughts off reading Joel or it might break your whole perspective because like the way he writes about white supremacy and its, uh, its central role in, in American life is uh -huh. from, from the founding. It's not like this is new. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. So he, that's a really interesting book. And that, that all goes into what I've tried to do because I also used to organize benefit concerts. I remember doing a big show to benefit uh, some anarchists in San Francisco who got arrested you know, way back when for who remembers what anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but we actually got Pat the Bunny from Ramshackle Glory and the Wingnut Dishwashers Union to come play, which uh -huh. was very cool. Um, Pat the Bunny, legend. Absolute legend. I, I hope he's out there doing all that computer programming code stuff as best as he can. Yeah. I, I had a really funny idea for uh, a sketch. That I, it would only be, it'd be like a funny thing on YouTube or on like TikTok because it would have to get around. Yeah. But like some anarchist collective just wants to book Pat and they don't even care what for. And they're like, look, we'll give you 400 bucks. Just come to our thing. We need you. And he shows up and gives like a lecture on how to like design. I think he does graphic design. <laughs> Oh man! But yeah, Pat came and played our show, and he was very gracious, and he's uh, he's a good guy. Yeah, totally. And I saw I saw Ram Shackle play the old trunk space. Yeah, that we were talking about earlier. 
My very first solo show ever was at the old trunk space. Legendary venue in Phoenix, Arizona. The the one we're talking about closed. They moved to the Grace Lutheran Church. But uh, for comparison, for anyone listening, think Gilman. It's like 924 Gilman, but uh-huh. in Phoenix. Like that's Matt and Kim played there. Like Matt yeah. and Kim, when they were there was a big issue, they were gonna have to close. Or I think they were getting an air conditioner. Matt and Kim donated a thousand dollars to the trunk spaces. Uh, GoFundMe to overhaul their air conditioning situation. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a. Uh, that's a, open. Mike Eagles played there. Clipping has played there. Uh-huh. Which, uh huh. Which for anyone who doesn't know, Clipping, um, I'm blanking on his name, but one of the guys in Clipping was in fucking Hamilton. Like, oh really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh cool. Big time people played there. I. Uh, that's the thing about Phoenix. Um, well, a lot of scenes around the country because you know I've been doing the DIY touring thing since like my first band when I was 19. So it's like. And not like every, not all the time or as much as I do now, but like pretty consistently. And I know, even though I haven't broken into the music scenes in certain areas, I know they exist. I was talking to my friend Matt Puckett last night and uh, he was telling me about like the way his old band was treated in like Eugene, Oregon and uh, like Davis, California. And I was like, I've always known there's really good scenes there, but I haven't been able to break into that pocket, you know, and it's like... um, and Phoenix, I feel that way about too, because I know there's a great scene there. Because like all the shows I went to, I would like in high school would drive three hours to like go see bands and then come back after for school the next day. But uh, um, I saw Saul Williams in the backyard of a bookstore outdoor show in Phoenix, Arizona. Really, a place called Lawn Gnome Publishing. Uh, yeah, Saul fucking Williams. Damn. Open Mike Eagle played that same bookstore uh, later in life. I interviewed him right before he played, but I wasn't able to be at the show. Um, I think you get that when you're in these towns that aren't quite major markets, which like Phoenix is, but downtown and downtown Phoenix is way more disgusting than it was when I lived there. It was still, it still had this like weird small town vibe around the yeah. stuff. Like that's the sm- city, small Lake city, like, because it's like the city's huge, but the counterculture and people that are into certain things, there's big, there's, it's big and there's all these pockets, but like really in the downtown area, there can only be so many people, you know, but downtown Phoenix, it's like that. That's my excursion into even being kind of a weirdo and being involved in the arts started there. Mm hmm. I was a very regular person who did very regular people things until really. Yeah. Yeah. Until, uh, until I, I got to downtown Phoenix and I started experiencing like counterculture as a, like a 23 year old. See, and I just thought of you as like, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like, it's just like a, like a punk through and through since you were like a child and uh, you're like a Jersey punk kid, you know, I went to some punk shows when I was young, but like from like 10th grade on, I wanted to be Cameron. And I acted that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I really, that's how I acted. And, like, when I first got to Arizona, it was like, let's go to the pool party and check out all the girls and, you know, let's get into fights. Let's be fucking assholes. Yeah, and, I I definitely ran with the crowd like that sometimes. And uh, and I guess I could, I could definitely put on that uniform back then. <laughs> I mean, I always, there was always punk music. Like, I went to Warp Tour when I was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. it was a lot of bands. I like a lot of influential bands I still listen to. But something real cool I got to do, talking about Warp Tour. Um, so when I was 14, I went to Warp Tour down in Florida with my buddy Mikey Gore. And uh, Mikey's like a family man now. I think he like it runs sanitation or something in a small town in Florida. Dude nice. is jacked out of his mind. Has yeah. two kids. Way to go, Mikey. Yeah. And um, 
we went to the Warp Tour together, and we saw the bands he wanted to see, and I met Justin Sane from Anti-Flood. Really? And cool. I got a picture with him, and then he was doing a Pace session. You've met Brad. Pace Magazine uh, does live sessions. They used to have a studio. Now they do it all over the country because they closed the studio due to COVID. Uh, definitely go check out Pace Magazine's YouTube channel if you want to see some like really great live sessions of all your favorite bands. They have thousands if not hundreds of tens of thousands of videos up there it's really great anyway awesome. anti-flag's coming through and i got to go i brought the picture and showed it to justin and then we like recreated the picture in the pace studio that's so sick <laughs> that's fucking rad um but yeah so i went to warp tour and i liked flogging molly and i, I was a, like i dabbled in counterculture until like I also had a really mean brother who bullied me about like everything i liked that wasn't regular yeah so like he kind of, I kind of like acted more like him, I guess, to impress him more or something. I totally get that. There's, there's aspects of me that I, I, it's like, I know I'm like a much weirder person than I, than I actually like put forward because of like, what would people from like back home think? And it's like, I haven't lived back home since I was fucking 18, but it's like just this shit ingrained in my fucking head, you know? I still hang um, with the people from back home. I do too. Like, Every uh, time I went to, that's my, the biggest part of my fan base is people that I went to high school well, with. Well, they still, <laughs> back home for me is only 10 miles from where we sit. And like, oh yeah, that's true. So like my buddy Ben, who I've known since I'm eight, st- lives in the city. Uh, Ora Pendola, a great, uh, a great singer songwriter here in the city uh, I've known since uh, since I was 13 um, cool. my friend Mo who I'm still in you know pretty regular contact with I've known since I'm 15 like I have friends all over the place and it, it is you start to see those circles close as people go their their um, separate ways you know go live different lives people start having kids people start doing other things that whether you agree with or not that just kind of separate you from them Totally. Our, our friend base, like it used to, we were commenting on it last weekend. I just put on a vaudeville show in upstate New York at Ben's parents' art space. Mm-hmm. Uh, how five years ago, we probably could have mustered up 15, 20 friends to come out just to be there, not to like, not to perform. Uh-huh. And in the year of our Lord, 2022, I think we had five friends all together and two of them were, or three of them were performers. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, also the weird thing about touring now is, like I still have a lot of friends that that come out to shows, but also there's some that it's like they're really close friends, and I try to hang out with them when I can. But I just know that like they're probably not making it to a show because they got three kids, and it's like that's why I'm like at the point where I love. The, it's like that weird thing we were talking about earlier, where you can choose as an artist to like do the brewery gig, and you get paid three hundred bucks to play for three hours, and that puts gas in your tank and helps you pay rent, but it doesn't really make you fans. Um, and then it makes you the wrong kind. It may, oh my God. The people who really dig the brewery act, the, uh, the entertainment act, not the, not the draw act are the fucking worst. Well, yeah. And even if you do convince them to come to your show, they're sitting there yelling at you to play your cover of I'm on fire by Springsteen or play, you know, whatever cover they heard that night. They don't give a shit about your music. Well, that's why I only played like a handful of covers. Even if I'm playing for three hour gigs. Yeah. I have much material. Yeah, I've, I have a do, lot man. of material. Uh, <laughs> well, and like if I do covers, it's songs that I fucking like dig. I mean, but you also know? the covers are what gets the people to come up to your little basket and leave a tip. Totally, you know? but and we like do a, a cover of like Folsom Prison that like nice. people are like, I've never fucking heard Folsom. Like we're going to possibly put it on a record because it's like the 
coolest cover of Folsom Prison you've ever heard. You know, like, and that's when I'm like, or we do like a Modest Mouse song that's like a deep cut and people don't really know, but then the people that do, they're like, dude, <laughs> sick, you know? So, like, that's the type of shit I like to do with covers or always the Towns Van Zant type shit. But, like, I guess what I was saying is the, you know, it's hard to get, like, real fans off of like a brewery gig or when you do they want to hear the cover they're not they're not like music fans they're like beer fans or getting drunk fans Big and it's a, it's like a different thing they're wearing flip-flops cargo shorts backward hats yeah. tribal tattoos yeah they're probably recently divorced dads <laughs> you know um and like usually i sell merch to those dudes all day long i'm always like yeah you should get a t-shirt or can i dude you listen to vinyl Dude, my record on vinyl sounds so fucking good. And they're, they got money. So it's like, yeah, those dudes, usually I can get 40, 50 bucks of merch out of, you know? And it's like, and I'll, I'm very grateful for that. But then I also have fans that like just want to make sure I can keep doing what I do that show up to every show and buy every t-shirt and like, we nope. have that. Megaran has that in spades. I got. I want to give a shout out to the randos real quick. Yeah, uh, please. Not, the, the randos are his fans. Like I, I could go down the list of the Patreon people or whatever, but like. They support everything he does. They are collectors who want every new piece of everything. They really, for some of them, I don't think it's even so much liking the music anymore as liking that it's going on. They, like liking knowing it's happening. I was talking. Liking that he's out there spreading his message and doing his thing because they just believe in it so much. Exactly. And that's what my fans are like. And it's, I think. I love that. Patreon has created and, and crowdsourcing in general. Like, I'm not going to pretend like there's no begging aspect to it. It feels like begging sometimes. But. I think the fans who really care, who really want you to be out there doing it, feel ownership when they get to give to your Patreon every week, when they get to give to your Kickstarter, your Indiegogo, your whatever, and get the special items and get the Mega Ran. It doesn't matter how much money it went for. It went for a lot. He wears a Mega Buster, like a blaster on his arm. We uh -huh. sold it. Like we, we put it up as an item and somebody paid a great deal of money for it to have it autographed. And like they want to own a piece of it. And mm -hmm. it's not it's it's. It's different than buying a T-shirt at the show. It's even different than getting your favorite artist to autograph it at the show. Fully knowing your favorite artist couldn't do what they do without your help, without your support. Totally. In, in a tangible way. None of this, you bought the record and it went through the store and then it went through the label and then 25 cents wound up in the guy's pocket. Yeah. Buying it directly from you, helping you directly. I, I really hope, I think there's a lot of uh, singer-songwriters, a lot of like older guys out there, a lot of older people out there who are kind of stubborn about the crowdsourcing and the rolling crowdsourcing, especially they don't want to yeah. be involved in it. A lot of my peers, you know, I guess I would be considered kind of older now. I'm like 35, 34. I mean, I was talking but... about uh, 60 year olds. I specifically, but, but like my age, I, I know people my age specifically too, that like, don't want to do that. Cause it feels like begging. And I'm like, dude, it, but it's like a, it's a more pure, like when I said, fuck capitalism earlier about selling weed or drugs or whatever, it's like, obviously, that's capitalism. Like, obviously, you're selling something like goods and services. That's capitalism. But you're existing kind of outside of the fucking system. Sex work is real work. Exactly. I just exactly. That. You didn't quite touch on it, but I just think that's an important thing that people don't think about. I was if hinting I at it, but I appreciate yeah. you bringing it up. because uh, Absolutely. Sex work is real work. You're all selling your bodies. You're all selling your brains. You're all selling your energy. I don't yeah. care what you do. You're selling yourself. Exactly. And there's a whole lot of reasons people wind up in sex work, and it's not always horrible it is not always something bad like some people choose that some people like yeah. that uh, i know someone who considers herself a healer and, totally and fuck you to anybody who doesn't think that you know yeah when it, me, and it's legitimate work and i'm very sorry uh henry my bad and it's legitimate work you know it's like uh, yeah i 100 percent agree with you on that point and like that's that's the whole thing is like 
I would rather, you know, people are like, oh, you're begging for money. I'm like, I'm not begging for money. I'm, I'm like asking people to help me keep the dream alive, you know, like and help me make make it happen. But I'd I'm, rather ask my fans directly than go begging to some label or or like working for fucking Jeff Bezos or something like that. And not saying like if you got to work for Amazon or got to work for someone like that's one thing. But like choosing or being like, I don't want to beg. So I'm going to go work a job so I can sell my labor to get to make some fucking asshole a bunch of money and not get paid for my labor or get ownership in the company when it's like you could just put that much more effort into marketing yourself and like getting your like building a fan base that would like support you like i don't know it's it, yeah I, like i was saying before it just gives your fan base a level of ownership they've never had before in their mm -hmm. favorite artists and likely None of Mega Rand's fans are going to go out there and write as good a song as he does. None of your fans are likely to go out there and write a song as good as you do. And they want to feel closer to the art. Totally. And how else to do it? Like, that's, I think it's discredited. I think it's insulted. I think people feel put it too much on begging. And that's because we're so used to, like, this dumbass idea of American individualism where I'll make my own way. Because none of us yeah. do. Nobody. Self-made millionaire, does. eat a billion dicks. Does yeah. not exist. No, it doesn't. No, I mean, you. yeah, I, and for me to, it's like, I, I'm like a solo artist, but like for me to even begin to act like I've done all this on my own. Yeah, I've done a lot of the work that went into getting to where I'm at now, but like to, to act like I fucking made it on my own is such bullshit, like purely on the kindness and support of others. Like now that we're here i want to there's some people i just have to mention and it goes along with the story i was telling um so eventually living out there in phoenix and have, being a part of occupy phoenix and starting to book my own shows and do my own thing i met this guy named joe sawinski uh-huh uh, one more time i didn't catch it joe sawinski sawinski who okay. also went by dagger pan okay uh, was his like his stage name and me and him he was the he was the boyfriend of a friend I met through Occupy, and me and him hit it off very well, very quickly, and started putting on our own shows together. We did a thing called For Us Presents. We had a, a monthly event called the Firehouse of Punk that we put on at the Firehouse Gallery, RIP, the most incredible, magical place ever. I learned everything I know there. And eventually that turned into a three-day music festival that we put on called It Gets Weird Fest. Cool. And... Um, we had a falling out eventually. It was a real bad one. We had like a little beef going on in the neighborhood and stuff. And we eventually got past it years later. But Joe is gone now. Oh, and um, we, we lost that. Joe just a few months ago to fentanyl, unfortunately. Fuck, I'm sorry to hear that. And it, like we, we patched it up. We hugged it out. Uh, the last time, unfortunately, was around the passing of another person who we discovered together. This mm -hmm. guy, Andy Warpigs. And Andy... Was a part. He played Weird Fest, and he played a lot of the weird shit we did at the firehouse. He was this like weird psychedelic cowboy. Uh -huh. who, who I sang. heard a lot about Andy when he passed, just through mutual friends uh, in Phoenix. He was a Phoenix guy. Yeah, I, I believe a lot of people I know were posting about him and stuff, but I didn't know him personally. Sorry. To I mean, we. I wouldn't be where I am today without him and without his mother. Period. She was one of the most supportive people I've ever met in my life. She showed up at all of his shows, all of his gigs, all of his everything. She's still around. I, you know, when I'm out in Phoenix, that's like the number one person I visit. Um, and losing those two so suddenly and so close to each other in the same way, I wasn't in super great contact with either of them. I won't pretend like I was. 
Uh, and, and Joe especially, I wasn't in any rush to be in great contact with. But it's just like such a blow to like find out someone like that who organized shows, who welcomed people in, who who wanted to to make a good experience that as many people as possible could be a part of are just fucking gone. And just real like like COVID is a plague, but like fentanyl is the plague. Yeah, fentanyl and COVID is bad and it's awful and we, we gotta keep mitigating and doing what we can about it. But fentanyl, man, and COVID is much more random. Diseases are gonna happen. Fentanyl was done to us. Yeah. And, I mean, the opioid ap- epidemic with the fucking Purdue Pharmaceuticals like, and the fucking Sackler family, those motherfuckers should be behind bars, every single one of them. I mean, I don't really believe in prisons, but I don't really exist, that's who they should be for. Yeah, exactly. Like, child molesters and people that do that. Um, I uh, Or, like, Robert Evans from Behind the Bastards, one of my favorite podcasts, he says that for people like that, the best punishment is you f- you make them live at the poverty line for the rest of their life. You take enough of their money to where they can only live at the poverty line the rest of their life. They have some menial job that just they just do that. They can't make any more money, and then the rest of their money goes to fucking like helping the families of victims and and trying to like those are real victims, man. This fucking opioid shit and this fentanyl shit. Yeah, I I had a uh, a brush with that when I lived in Arizona back in the day, and kind of like very early on scared myself enough with <laughs> with pills and opiates that like I, I I'm just lucky I like stopped before it got like really fucking bad. Phoenix just got absolutely rocked by the opioid epidemic, and especially the the art scene there. Like uh, we lost uh, Rick Hill. He was the lead singer of a band called Sad Kid. And uh, he wasn't too involved in the music when we lost him, but just like someone who was close to the scene. And right after him was Andy. And right after Andy, uh, unfortunately, this uh, a guy named uh, Eddie Detroit, musical legend out there in Phoenix, threw himself off a building. Oh, that was like the day after that the memorial that I put together for Andy. Fuck. Yeah, and then... <clears throat> And then fucking Joe, who was just another, like, he wasn't quite Andy Warpigs, but he was another person who was out there, and people knew, and people knew he threw parties and went, went to go here and play music. And it, it just absolutely fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the fucking opioid shit. I, just, I wanted to give some time to Joe and Andy, because they are integral yeah. to me being able to do the things I do, and the show that I put on, and the Catskills were things that I learned working with the two of them. And, um, tell me, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but tell me about like that experience of like what you, what you did learn and like when you were booking shows, like what types of things. One of the very first lessons I recall learning, we put on the show, the very first firehouse of punk and our good buddy, Matt Spastic headlined it and helped us put it together. I helped us get bands and stuff. Cause we weren't too, we had a couple bands we knew we wanted to play and we didn't know too much. Uh-huh. And Matt got us some bands and helped us put it on. And we got to put our stamp on it. Firehouse of punk. And he still has the flyer. Matt still has the flyer in his place. Matt's one of my best good friends. He's going to be, uh, Matt's turning 50 in a couple, two weeks from now. Matt's going to be 50. Happy birthday, Matt. And Matt is, and I don't think I'm spilling too many beans. Matt didn't think he was getting to 50. Not yeah. a fucking chance. And I, I, he's been around to see enough people go that he wishes we're still here to be 50 with him. You know? Yeah. He's, he's just been, lived quite an incredible life. And he's someone who, and I'm going to tell you what he taught me, this important lesson, but he also like, is so ecstatic to be the man that he is, and I'm so ecstatic that he is. I'm not cool. inside his head all the time, but like, he works his job, he pays his rent, he tours in his bands once or twice a year, he plays, he makes records, and he just loves it. Yeah, he is. 
And he's almost like a, he's a local legend in Phoenix. He's like a local celebrity, but he'll fight that if he'll he'd probably he'll probably get mad at me if he hears me say that. Yeah, he yeah, totally. That shit, but he is, and he's he's just been a very important force in my life for absolute good because he's just awesome. Uh, we threw the show. He he helped us book it. We made a little bit of money, and I think I bragged about it. And he's like, "Yo, the bands didn't even get paid. It didn't occur to me that we should pay the bands." And I know that might sound nuts, like I must have been being a dickhead or something. We just didn't fucking know. Yeah. You know? And so uh, you know, that money got back out to the bands. We didn't hold on to it. And then we did it next. Like that's, that's, there's the first lesson I learned. Pay the yeah, bands. Totally. And um, good thing I learned that on the first show. You know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I mean, some people, yeah, never learn that. <laughs> yeah. No. And so Michael uh, runs the firehouse, ran the venue that we, he owns it, owns the firehouse. And he had this thing called First Friday Night Live. He was the driving force behind that, which was a sketch comedy show once a month in downtown Phoenix during First Friday, which was like the art walk Uh uh, every month. And he ran it between September and May. (coughs) Excuse me. And what he one day told me was that, well, First Friday Night Live, besides being his own little pet project that he liked liked to put on, it brought in some money. We charged $7 a head. It was a real cool thing. Mm Mm-hmm was teaching everyone at the firehouse how to do lighting, how to do sound, how to work the front door, how to sell tickets, how to promote. Cool. And so that when we did a big group project, it just went off without a hitch. And he like, he never explicitly said that to a group of people for the, the goal of First Friday Night Live is to teach you all how to do this. But he told me that one day. Yeah. And um, That's and so smart. After we did the Weird Fest thing, when it was like, how did we do this? And Michael's like, well, why do you think I do first Friday night live? Yeah. And I'm fond of saying the firehouse crew is the greatest DIY production crew in the world. We once broke down the entire firehouse setup, moved it a mile and a half away in under an hour. Damn. To move to go from our from the main party to the after party, basically. That's uh <coughs> that's super impressive and uh something I wish I had learned at an earlier age. I used to do shows in my high school and I've talked about it a bunch on the podcast, so I won't get too into it, but that was where I started was like setting up shows in the halls of Blue Ridge High School because there was nowhere else for bands to play. And, uh, um, and there was like an after at a certain point, I got too busy to like still be throwing shows, and there were some other kids that wanted to start doing it. And, and like, er, there was like some competition there, and I was kind of like my ego, like we talked about before, was, um, you know, I feel like I just wish that then they were younger. I wish I had just put more effort into like teaching them and trying to be like, hey, this is how you like, you know, how you put on a good show and stuff like that. And like or like because if you want a better scene, you need more people to know how to throw a successful show. If you want better bands, you need bands playing shows more consistently that are worth their time and feel good because like for a lot of people playing 10 shows that nobody shows up to and that aren't very good. And the promoters an asshole and blah, blah, blah is enough to be like, I don't ever want to play a show again. <coughs> Sorry. I keep uh, coughing here. Um, yeah. I mean, that was another aspect of firehouse was, it was like all ages. Mm-hmm. And when I say all ages, I mean, we had high schoolers running around and we had 70 year olds running around. Nice. And, and it, it <clears throat> until that point in my life, mostly everyone I knew was my age. Uh huh. And all of a sudden, I'm just surrounded by all these like wonderful fucking people who are a lot older than me with so many things to teach me. Just keep on commenting about this vaudeville show upstate I did. 
I stole the idea to do a vaudeville medicine show from Pete Petrisco, a wonderful and, and Damian Cool, two wonderful Phoenix artists who who wanted to do a vaudeville medicine. So they called it the Hurley Burley Vaudeville Medicine Show, uh-huh. and they did it ahead of our biggest, my favorite event ever in Phoenix, the Phoenix Burn, which Michael Twenty Three uh, made. Uh, he would build like a seven foot tall, three dimensional phoenix, and like that shit on fire in the middle of downtown Phoenix with no permit, no no permission. Every once in a while, we had to like do things to throw the cops off our scent so we could get it done. But it was just my absolute favorite event ever, and the Hurley Burley Vaudeville Medicine Show was like the precursor to that one year. That's they, cool. Yeah, the burn, the Phoenix burn specifically. I've never been to Burning Man. I've been to what's called Saguaro Man, the Arizona Regional Burn. Uh huh. Obviously, we all, I mean, everybody has their opinion of Burning Man, and they're mostly negative at this point. The Phoenix, One of the tenets of Burning Man was bring it home, and Michael took that one seriously. Uh-huh. And that's why the firehouse existed. It was also the, uh, he called it uh, the Phoenix Community Burn Platform. Cool. And, um, and I've always taken that very seriously uh, as far as taking it home, like making it. I don't get into a costume once a year and run around the desert. I do this here where I live in Brooklyn. I put on weird parties and I try and do cool things uh-huh. and be a part of cool things. I'm not always able to throw them myself. I wish I was, but I just try and be as authentic as I can be, uh-huh. which is, I think what bringing it home means. Totally. I I got friends specifically. Some of my friends from college, like they love burning man and they go, go every year. One of them's a ranger. Uh, goes to ranger training. He's just mostly because he's just like, I want everyone to like have a great time here, and I want it to go well, and I want to take care of people while I'm here. And uh, stop them from leaving moop. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, um, but yeah, no, I think that's definitely a, a tenet that um, that I mean, anybody trying to that's I was talking to my buddy Matt Puckett last night about this. Who uh, how he was like, I, he's came up in the Austin scene, and he's like, the Austin scene's very much like. You know, any night of the week, there's four or five bars that I know there's going to be good music at. So if I want to do something, I just go to those bars and and like it's like a community. The music scene feels like everybody's like showing up to like support each other and stuff like that. And he's like, I haven't really found that in New York yet. I don't know what the deal is. And I'm like, and it just feels like a different vibe. It's not very like, you know, who had that? Do you know King Pizza Records at all? No. There's a guy named Greg Hansen. Him and his buds came up here and started a little record label, a little cassette tape label. Uh, I think they did some vinyl, too. I know they did vinyl. And they really had a real good scene going for a bit. These bands, the Mad Doctors, the Royal, the Royal They. I think that's what they were. The Royal We? No, the Royal They. Um, <clears throat> uh, Coach and Commando. Um, Sun Voyager. I, I, could keep I know on Sun Voyager. I know that band. I could keep on, you know, naming bands, these bands that no one's ever heard of, but they built... I mean, some of these bands actually are. Stydide played some of their shows. Oh, were yeah. pretty incredible. The first time I saw Thick was at one of their shows, who, for anyone who doesn't know Thick, if you like incredible pop punk, go check them out. Simon oh, yeah. Taff from right here in Brooklyn. And like I say, the first time I saw them was at one of these King Pizza shows. They had a real good scene going on. And um, of su- a supportive scene. It also, it becomes, to a point, it becomes insular. Uh-huh. Where it's all self-congratulatory. You're playing a packed show every night, but it's to the same people. Yeah, but I mean that's that's what a scene becomes, you know. And it seemed very supportive and a lot less like backstabby uh-huh. than a lot of other music situations I've been a part of. Yeah, that's cool because I just haven't found that in New York. I got friends that play in bands, but we all play in like way different types of music, and I, I'm like, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've also not put like a lot of effort into. Uh, I used to do a songwriter night in Brooklyn in Bed, or Crown Heights once a month, and that was really fun. But uh, had the venue, the venue closed during COVID. So what I've always found is that in Phoenix, where when everything was cheap, when I lived down there, I was like in a. My first year in Phoenix wasn't so hot. We had a one bedroom apartment that we probably overpaid for a little bit. The second year. Uh, me and my partner at the time had a two-bedroom, a huge two-bedroom. We could see the baseball stadium from our front porch, ride our bikes everywhere we wanted to go, and there was just always something to do. And there was like, and it's cool. And you, I, I always had, like, I spent a lot more time alone in New York City. Uh huh. You same. know, a lot more time at home alone than when I was in Phoenix. There's always someone to hang out with. Yeah. But I think that's because once you get to New York, it's like. If you're not working, if you're not like at your job, you're working on what you actually care about. Or you're spending money. Or, or you're spending yeah, money. Yeah, and if you leave your front door, you're spending money. Immediately. And I, I prefer to... And a um, lot of money. Yeah. Because Phoenix, I'd leave my front door and spend money. I'd go, I'd gra- grab a 12-pack of beers from the Circle K, ride my bike over to Fire. It was like six bucks. <laughs> and I spent, exactly, I spent $8 on the whole fucking day. Yeah. New York City, I spent $8 on a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, I used to get a quesadilla from the taco stand down the street from my house, and they were so big, they were $3. Or you get a burrito, they were also $3. They were so big, it was two meals. And at the time, I just... I drank a lot of coffee like I still do and I smoked a lot of cigarettes and so usually just between those two things and the the beer I would start drinking at like 5 p.m. I would only need to eat two meals a day <laughs> so I would just spend three dollars on a burrito and that would be all the food I ate the whole day maybe some like potato chips or french fries or something and uh, so yeah I remember when life was cheap Salt Lake City now it's not so now Salt Lake City is expensive as fuck. Same for Phoenix. I'm constantly hearing about friends getting priced out of their neighborhoods in Phoenix and in Tempe. Tempe's growing very fast. I believe they're that kind of, they're sister cities. Phoenix yeah, and Tempe. You don't really have one without the other. Pretty much right next and door. Once you leave Arizona, if you were a Tempe band, you're probably gonna say I'm a Phoenix band. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're going on tour and you're gonna go tour to New York City, you're probably gonna say I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, not from Tempe, Arizona. Yeah, probably. But the, the scenes become like, I, I, there were advantages and if, like anything, there's disadvantages. And I think they became really like backbiting and infighting and fake. Uh-huh. A lot of people wanted to tell you how great you are and not meaning it. I always remember like goofy fucking arguments that like, we're trying to build a scene. The, the bigger bands need to come down and, and play the, the smaller shows every once in a while. And then the bigger bands are like, why am I going to go play Long Longs on a Tuesday night? I draw 400 if I wait for Crescent on a Friday. Like yeah. I'm going to play my own big shows and not take steps back because like the scene it's cool to have, it's fun for life, but it's not it's not if you really want to be a professional musician, getting bogged down by a scene is not what you want to do. Yeah, well you have to what I've learned and it's taken me a long time, but you have to find, and I read this actually speaking of Springsteen in his autobiography, he talked about how like, I've read chapter and verse as well. Yeah. Or I was born to run was the one I, uh, I read chapter and verse was the CD that went along with it or the, the music that went with it. So yeah, oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I, I saw uh, the Broadway show. I've listened to the record and I read the book. Oh, sick. Like I a need three piece thing. Damn. Know? I didn't yeah. do the Broadway show. I didn't even watch the Netflix version. I, I cried all the way through it in person oh, and I cried all the way through it on Netflix. Damn, I need to watch it. I uh 
but like something he said, and I've noticed too, and my old band, when we started having tours that actually made us money is you have to have those like anchors, those, those things that he was like, we, we knew that we could go to like a certain town in Virginia and like draw like 500 plus people and make a few thousand dollars in, you know, 1972 or whatever. And that was like what they did to like go down there every three months and make a bunch of money. And then, they, and then that turned into like, and they could always make money in New Jersey. And, and so then they, yeah. And that was like how they started touring and doing these things and funding things. And if you're the way you pay for your, your record is by having a record release at Crescent ballroom on a Friday night. Cause you can sell it out and make a bunch of money. Yeah. I can't play on Tuesday and, and dilute my draw. Like I can't do that. It's always just about finding a balance where you can feel good about being true to your art and also try and make a living. And it's yeah. extremely difficult. Capitalism is the worst. I often muse that like Megaran and I are essentially, we essentially work for the social media companies. Oh, same. You know, yeah. we, we, that's how we get our, and as we were saying it was earlier that social media is the devil and all, but like we work like without social media. I always, it was like a stupid thing somebody wrote on a chalkboard one time that I saw that said, if social media ceased to exist, would you still be an artist? And I think about that all the fucking time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, because I figured out how to do it on MySpace, and then that turned into Facebook, and then Instagram, and and now I'm fucking getting old. And, and yeah, no, that's a really good point. Uh, my friend sent me a, a record I needed to listen to on Bandcamp this morning, and... Uh, I I like support artists on Bandcamp, but I never listen to music on Bandcamp, and I should because it's like a good platform, and it like for the moment they just got bought. They did get Spotify, bought out. So they? was it Spotify that it bought them out? Not good. I don't yeah, know. I don't think it was Spotify, but it was definitely like oh shit. Um, but at least like I just realized this morning, like oh, I should be listening to music more on Bandcamp, and then I also started realizing like um. Oh, I should be just releasing like demos and like little things on Bandcamp like weekly because then that just gives like another thing to point out everybody listening as two professional like music people sitting here buy direct from the artist. I love my Spotify account. Listen to Spotify all the time. You would have to listen to Charles's entire discography 86 billion times to give him the amount of money you could give him by going to his band camp and buying the record. So buy directly from the artists. Don't stream that you're not doing them the same sort of favor. Buy from the artists. Totally. And I tell people like you can kind of double dip in a way. Cause I love my Spotify account too. Buy I don't like listen on Spotify on the go. Then you make <laughs> them. Yeah. Then you make them money on each stream and you, but you're like, you're helping them make an actual living. Um, by buying also talk merch. about your favorite musicians yeah tell your friends who you like and get them to listen to them like there, dude there's that tiktok or maybe it's an instagram reel you know how they'll like reuse the audio or, or you can like share oh this audio is popular i'm gonna make a a reel using that audio and one of them's like my friends will be like why aren't you famous yet and i'm like because you didn't share my shit <laughs> and i i like i i kind of want to like fucking use that as like a passive aggressive thing but also like uh, yeah <laughs> It's like true I mean, though. I also see like I think a lot of people are terrible about being supportive, but then there's a lot of artists who are like pretentious about why you should support them. It's like you yeah. still have to give people a reason. Like just because you totally. put a song out doesn't mean I have to care. No, totally. Yeah. And that's that's a place where I struggle is like where when I do end up cutting corners, it's in the story and the marketing of the thing, which is like one of the most important things. But it's just like 
as a one man operation um, with help from people, obviously. But like when it's like everything falls on my shoulders, mostly like sometimes by the end of like finishing a record and it's time to put it out, I'm like, I can't fucking I just or like not can't like I the marketing doesn't always come through as as well as everything else does. Music marketing has become uh, it's just so I, I don't understand how it works. I'm always constantly confused by the things that happen. Usual indicators that a band should be nobodies don't show you anything because for some reason they have no Facebook presence, no Instagram presence, no Twitter presence, but their Spotify has 1.7 million plays. Because they got on some Spotify playlist. Something like that. Yeah, it's... it's blogs are dead. I can tell you that. Uh, getting, yeah. getting those blog placements no longer matter. Paying PR people to get you blog placements is dumping your money in the in the toilet. Yeah, I got some really cool placements, and I liked my PR person on my last record, but also it's like I didn't see a huge bump in sales or anything like that. Like, unless you're getting coverage in fucking the New York Times or um, uh, Rolling, Stone. Rolling Stone, something like that, Pitchfork, Paste, yep. you know, and it's like... Not to disparage my good friends at Paste Magazine. They're amazing uh, quality... Uh, magazine they are awesome and you know brad wagner is one of the best interviews in the country by far great dude i ran into him at a show in manhattan <laughs> like a couple weeks after we first met and he was like dude i know you i was like oh shit i know you <laughs> yeah he does that a lot yeah he's, he's everywhere he's an incredible guy paste isn't one of those placements to be honest i don't think like, really you get a new york times placement you're famous by thursday i don't know that paste does the same well new york you. times definitely has a much yeah, bigger reach course, than like paste but like as far as it's a respected music publication like i got written up in american songwriter and like as far as we've been in consequence and i didn't feel a bump really yeah like, I well just, it's like i didn't feel a huge bump in my american songwriter write-up but like it, it just it's almost like that that check mark on your twitter profile in a way it, it is like a legitimizer because like and i think American songwriter in some ways it just like a lot of the marketing stuff that I receive from them and I see on their Instagram I'm just like this is just hokey like this is not good this is but some of the the um sorry the journalism is I think quality you know and like it's a legitimizer but like how many people actually read that and then go buy the record it truly becomes just something to put on your wikipedia page totally more so than anything new york times will if you get new york times right up you're gonna feel that totally but a lot of and, and rolling stone and but even like some of the bigger old hip-hop magazines like complex and okay player it's really not really doing much. what i was gonna ask you like and we're really we've jumped around so much and i don't know i feel like this has been a long interview but uh uh what um what do you like as far as music marketing these days is it like because i'm really hesitant to just throw a bunch of money at fucking facebook ads because it seems to be like one of the most effective ways to just get your name out there like cost per click but it's like i have some real fucking moral hang-ups like i don't invest in facebook i invest in the stock market but definitely not fucking facebook then why would i throw them 400 dollars of marketing money one because it works yeah <laughs> Um, I, I will say that the Facebook ads work. It, it gets you to where you want to be. But I think it's all about digital marketing right now. I, you, you have to pay people to get you onto playlists. Yeah. I, I I don't know if I'm qualified to say this, but it seems like payola like it was in 1962, you know? Oh, yeah. But Give we, somebody some money. We've got a toothless government that's never going to be able to do f shit about it. But anyways. Not the, I don't even necessarily think the government needs to. I don't know. I don't want the government stepping into the music industry. But like... 
you give somebody a thousand bucks and they get your song onto a playlist for a few days. Honestly, what I've seen with like marketing, you'll do better to hire someone specifically and say, I want an article in Brooklyn Vegan. Figure that out for me and I'll give you $500. You'll do better doing that than like paying for a whole campaign. Yeah. The whole campaign, it's like, oh, wow, I'm in all these things, but also like none of them are anything. Yeah. I'm in 19 different publications and I've never heard of most of them. And like who actually reads them? That's Nobody. like the... it's for you to share. Yeah. You're paying for content for your social media so that you can share something besides come to my show, please. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Dang. It's all about digital marketing. It's all about playlists. It's all about Spotify playlists. It's all about big Spotify numbers. Of course, there's still like people want to know how you draw. You, you want to get out on the road? How do you draw in this market? Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah, so it's, I, th- I think putting all the money into digital marketing and into having ads on Spotify, I remember it was the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, Mega Rand's new album dropped, and I looked at my Spotify, and it was a full-page ad. Mega Rand's new album. Click here to go straight to it. That's going to do a lot more for you than getting a write-up in... Uh, and I hate the word write-up, by the way, than, in getting like written about in anything. Village yeah. Voice, you know? Totally. That's a uh, no. I mean, you've definitely confirmed my suspicions because it just seems like, oh, that's the way to get the Spotify numbers up. Is you just got to throw money at the, the marketing machine, and it's like, and I guess that's all you've like. I remember when I first heard the whole like, well, if you spend ten grand on a record, you should spend at least ten grand marketing it. Always been you should spend as much on. And I and like the first time I heard that, I, I had spent ten grand on a record, and I was broke for two years and in like all kinds of debt because I just like didn't make any money and like was fucked. I'm like, you want, I was supposed to double the amount of money I spent on that record without naming names. Some of the, like, sometimes if you spend too much on recording and especially on which producers you bring in, it can actually hurt you Yeah, because you hire a big time producer, but you're paying that big time. Produ- if you're, you know, guys in our position, you're probably playing that big, t- paying that big time producer, the low end of what they're used to making. So mm-hmm. you have a big time producer, but you're not their priority. So you'll probably be doing better getting somewhat like paying someone the most they've ever made than paying someone the least they usually get. That's interesting. Uh, I, I found that in Phoenix. I was uh, talking to a couple friends. I just I don't want to name names because this producer happens to be somebody like happens to be a big somebody. And not that I think we're so famous, we're going to leak out. But God forbid I should get someone in trouble with a dumb comment. Yeah. But like that was exactly how two different bands I know friends like good friends felt about working with this one Big time producer who did very cool stuff for very big people, winning awards and all that good mm-hmm. stuff. They felt like they gave him the low end of what he makes and they just really didn't care about what they were doing. I've definitely experienced that in other fields. I've luckily worked with producers that, uh, um, you know, usually like they're like friends or I lucked out with my last record where like lucked out. I don't know. That's a weird way to put it. But like COVID hit right while we were in the studio and so during quarantine, my producer was mixing my record and he's like, I got all the time in the fucking world, man. Like your records sounding so good. He's like, it's almost like a good thing because I'm spending way more time on your record than I normally would. And I'm like, sick. And I think the record sounds fucking awesome because of it, you know, but I, that's kind of what we're facing with the next record. And like what, something I'm starting to work on is like as a singer songwriter, I should be able to record 75% of my own record you know, just save that money, not do it in a studio, do it in a, you know, do overdubs in your room and have someone else spend some money on having someone mix it. 
Um, and that's, that's kind of the new way. Cause then you're not spending 10 grand on a record. Maybe you're spending like five or six and then you spend another six on marketing and pushing it or whatever. I think it's all magic and voodoo to be honest. In I, some ways I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Things just happen and you get bands that like someone put a ton of money behind and they explode and you get bands that are nobody that for one reason or another explode out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any set way to do things. I hear people like you have to keep on putting out content. You have to do a song a week. I hear other people like work really hard on your record, put out two records, uh, put out a record every other year. I think it's uh-huh. just a matter of doing what works for you and then knowing your fan base. Well, and if you're trying to build a fan base, like we were talking about earlier, that supports you in, uh, um, supports your journey, like directly through something like Patreon, um, then you just kind of like figure out, you kind of, train them what to expect you know do you put out a song a week that they really dig that's fucking sick or do you like one thing i mean speaking of people that i used to really love and got me too but like a band i loved for a long time was brand new and uh they used to spend so much time between records and i thought that it was because they're and their records fucking turned out like i really appreciated that because i thought the records turned out better because of it um but not everyone like these days you couldn't put out a record every four years like unless you're fucking Radiohead, you know. Say, like that's literally what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, we've we've been going. We've almost hit two hours, which is like kind of the the like we go past two hours sometimes. But um, I mean, I'll sit here and chat all day. No, same. <laughs> and so I I kind of want to like focus on things a little bit more. Like, how did you end up starting to work with Megaran? Like, you moved? Did you move to New York City, or did you meet? We met when I was living in, uh, interestingly, I interviewed him in the three-week period I was living in Miami, Arizona. Oh, really? When, uh, just after my 27th birthday, I lost my mother. As soon as I got back from Florida dealing with all the funeral stuff and the the loss of my mother, me and my girlfriend at the time started falling apart. And that's pretty regular. You know, you find that out later. It's like the most impossible thing you can imagine when you're a 27-year-old kid, but like, that's regular. Uh-huh. relationships break up around things like that yeah and so she threw me out we weren't living together anymore i wound up living in miami arizona for a few weeks as i got my shit together and kind of plotted for what i wanted to do and i was assigned to write a story about megaran for the phoenix new times i was still a very regular contributor to the new times at that point mm-hmm. um in fact just a sidebar i wrote a story about a guy named uh slime Hmm. And uh, I can't remember his real name anymore, but I remember his nickname was Slime, who had just died. Uh, this is just after my mom died, so I'm interviewing his widow oh, wow. to write. I'd never met him. I didn't know his name. He was good friends with Matt Spastic, and Matt spoke very highly of him, and that's why I was interested to do the story. And uh, I wrote about this uh, this guy, Slime, and it was just kind of cathartic. Like, her and I were able to commiserate together, and honestly, I couldn't reach her right now if I tried. Don't even yeah. remember her name. Yeah. But I think in that moment, we were kind of important to one another. Totally. To commiserate together. On it's super class. real. Yeah. But anyway, that, I was a regular contributor to New Times, and I was writing, an al- uh, writing a story that was going to be the music feature, the big story, about Megaran. He was dropping his record, RNDM, Random, um, which was also like a big turning point in his career where he stopped. For a while, he was called, like, he would go, he would do like the more serious records as Random and the more. Um, video game pop culture records is Megaran. Okay. And this record, Random, is where he stopped doing that. R-N-D-M is where he completely embraced the Megaran persona. Kind of brought them together. Exactly. And it became the one thing that Megaran can both be a goofy video game character and the teacher, the rapper, the hero. 
cool. guy, for lack of a better word, a woke rapper rapping about things that matter. Yeah, totally. And that that could be one person. And so that's when I met him. That's when we first interacted with each other. And everybody knew Megaran at Phoenix. He's been best rapper Phoenix New Times like three times. He was a step bigger than all the other music people. You know, there were mm-hmm. there were a few bands that were do bigger bands that came out of Phoenix or Jimmy Eat World, uh, Willie North Pole, the Gin Blossoms, like mm-hmm. the format. Yeah. But he was one of the big, he was, he was in that caliber more so than he was in the local music caliber. Cool. And, um, I interviewed him and I, he told this story too. So I, we had such a good interview at that. He ended up being the musical guest at first Friday night live, the sketch comedy show I was telling you about earlier that I, I was hosting that month. Cool. And, we had such a good conversation and what he tells a story on the stage at first Friday night live about it being interviewed by me and saying like, he asked how I was doing and I was like, I'm doing terrible, man. Like I'm living in this dead mining town in, in Western Arizona or in Southern Arizona, wherever the hell that place is, Eastern Arizona, like central Eastern. Yeah. yeah. And I just lost my mother and my girlfriend's breaking up with me, but I digress. We're here to talk about you. And that's the story he tells uh-huh. to everybody. And, um, Shortly after that, uh, the next night, he did the first Friday Night Live. He had a great time. The next night was his uh, record release at the Crescent. Sold it out. Had his band Bit Force fly in from Texas. Had MC Chris open for him, for anyone who knows who that is. Cool. You know MC Chris? I know that name. Okay. Chris is like a two date. He is the biggest nerdcore rapper ever. He yeah, that's why I know that name. He's pants. He, uh, he, he's a big, big deal in the nerdcore world. Okay. Big it, deal in the pop culture world. Cool. And uh, he got Chris to open for him at his own record release. So, like, for people who know Chris would know what that means. And I was there. He gave me tickets. I got some buddies in. We had a really good night. I didn't think too much of it after that. And I moved to New York City a month or two later. You know, I think he dropped his record. I moved to New York. He dropped his record around his birthday. So that's September 3rd, which means I moved to New York City 20 days later. I moved to New York City September 23rd. Which is also Michael 23's anniversary, Damn. which is something I've always and Bruce Springsteen's birthday, and uh, yeah, all these things coming together, you know. Yeah, none of this is a joke. Look those dates up, guys. Like that's for real. And um, I'm living back in Teaneck at my good friend Nick Glick's parents' house. Uh, Bud Glick is a wonderful photographer. If anyone wants to look him up, he was a part. Bud is Nick's dad. Nick is my good friend for life, and Bud was part of this thing called the Chinatown Project where he was documenting the daily life of the residents of Chinatown way back in the 70s. Cool. And that he had a full, it's been in the New York Times, it's been all over the place, those pictures, and he had an exhibit at the Museum of the Chinese in America for a few months. Really great photographer. He's on Instagram, Bud Glick. I think it's Bud Glick 1. And I was living in their house, and they were kind to me and let me live in the basement and get my shit together. Like They they knew my mother. My parents and them weren't great friends, but they knew my mother, and they'd known me my whole life. And Mm -hmm. they really, the Glicks were there for me when I needed someone, when I needed fucking anyone. Yeah. And one day, like uh, shortly after I moved, it must have been early October, I get a text from Megaran. Yo, play in Brooklyn. You're on the guest list plus one. I didn't even know we were friends like that. I got my buddy Mo, who I referenced earlier, to come with me. Uh-huh. We went to Shea Stadium. You ever played Shea Stadium? I did. Fucking Way back Shea in the day, Stadium. like CMJ show before I even lived here. What I think TJ cool got place. me on that show. <laughs> what a cool place that was. Yeah. Ran, packed it out. It was him. And I remember the other touring act was Mr. Miranda, Dave Miranda, real good guy from Phoenix who you can look up, who has a YouTube show. I don't think he has a podcast, but he has a YouTube show. 
I can't remember what it's called off top, but I know his last guest was Dumper Foo, a wonderful uh, Phoenix artist. Nice. And um, then Rand was touring with a good friend of mine, and he went and played the Grand Victory shortly after that, going into January, because it was a tour to MAGFest. MAGFest is music and gaming festival. Cool. And they played the Grand Victory, and I showed up with some Where's friends. Where's MAGFest? Uh, MAGFest happens in National Harbor, Maryland. Gotcha. Right near D.C. Mm-hmm. And so we see each other at his next show, and I'm there. I brought friends. I'm talking him up. Uh, then I saw him at Rubu Lad. And, you know, every time he came to the city, I was there. I missed one of his shows before I was his manager. I missed one of his shows in New York because Injury Reserve, a band, another Phoenix band. Well, they I don't think they really... They're much bigger than Phoenix now. They tour internationally. They're incredible. Uh, rest in peace to Jordan Groggs, who was a member of Injury Reserve, a very good friend of mine, someone... I keep digressing, but that's what podcasts are about. Uh-huh. When I lost my mother, he was another one who just like ran. I was like, I didn't even know we were homies like that. He was one of the first people who reached out. Really? And it was just mind blowing to me that like, because he was already, he wasn't quite a celebrity yet, but everyone knew that Injury Reserve was the next to blow and they were starting to tour bigger and do bigger things. And he was like one of the first people who reached out to see how I was doing. And we stayed in contact through the rest of his life. Unfortunate, we lost him uh, summer 2020. And I honestly, there was never a cause of death. Uh, injury reserve, if you're listening, I'd love to know, but I never felt appropriate to reach out. So if you guys wanted to tell me, I'd love to know. Yeah. Uh, I do, I miss Grogs very much. He was an incredible talent. Before we lost him, I, I have I have the receipts. I said Grogs is one of the five greatest rappers of all time, well before we lost him. Uh huh. Uh, and just another guy who was a kindred spirit. You know, we were about the same age, we had very similar issues, very similar problems, and. And he's just a great performer and a great rapper. But anyway, uh, so that's the only one I missed. I went to go see Injury Reserve and Rand understood because Injury Reserve is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one time he comes into the city, not for a show. Oh, no. That, so this is the one I missed. Wow. Oh, no. So I missed two because I missed one for Injury Reserve and I missed one to see Springsteen on Broadway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he played uh, elsewhere with Open Mike Eagle, a SummerSlam pre-show. That I that I missed to go to go see Bruce. I didn't miss anything. I saw Bruce on Broadway. Yeah. And um, after SummerSlam, the WWE wrestling event, uh, he told me he was like hanging in Brooklyn. He's like, "Come hang with me. Like, um, let's go. We'll go get a drink. We'll hang out." And um, I get to the the Talents Hotel, and there's some wrestling guys that I knew from when I was a kid hanging out, which was cool. Uh, I remember Christian, Mark Henry, and. Someone else was like hanging in the in the bar, and the, the bar closed early, so we had to go find another bar. And I found a place, and I I see this like giant man kind of arguing with this very small woman. And they were like, "I'm gonna find a place. I'm looking. You know what? I'm not from here. I don't know about you know that kind of thing." Yeah. And I'm like, "Yo, we're going to a bar over here. Uh, it's called whatever it was called. It's somewhere near Barclays Center, or whatever okay. bar it was, like a neighborhood bar. Yeah. Uh, you guys come with us. Come with us. You know." And he's like, sure. And it turns out that was Bray Wyatt, former WWE champion, arguing with his girlfriend, JoJo, who was like a WWE announcer. Really? So they come with us over to the bar. And while we're walking over, he's like, he's on his phone. And it turned out he was like texting the locker room. And so all the WWE guys are here now. All these, uh, you know, I'm I'm not as big a fan as I was when I was a kid. But I remember like, for anyone who cares, like Finn Balor and... uh, what was that guy's the monster among men? I can't remember what he went by. Um, Braun, something Braun. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't really Braun been Strowman. in touch in a while. <coughs> Excuse me. 
all these wrestling guys standing around. And I'm working the room because I don't know any of them. Yeah. This is Megaran. He's a great rapper. And Schaefer the Dark Lord was there as well. Another uh, very talented gentleman. <clears throat> and, uh, wow, starting to lose the voice. I've been talking too much. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and that night, I'm drunk as shit. And Megaran asked me, like, what if, like, have you ever thought about managing anyone? <clears throat> no. What if I asked you to manage me? Meh. <laughs> and then we got talking about it and all of a sudden I'm like here's what we're gonna do and this is what I think and blah 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 and he's like I thought you didn't want to do it uh huh <clears throat> and he hired me that weekend uh, he asked me to be his manager he caught me super off guard like forget about not knowing we were homies I didn't know he respected me that much yeah and it's been that for four years I think going on four years I've been I've been working with him and <clears throat> we've been growing and we've done some really cool stuff we got him we got him in that Madison Square Garden Oh wow! At a wrestling event, he got to play a sold-out Madison Square Garden. Um, he's got a song on the Mortal Kombat 11 soundtrack. Fuck, that's uh, so dope. Fingers are crossed that we should have a song coming out in a major motion picture soon, but I'm not going to say which or anything in case we wind up, you know, in case anything happens. Well, because that stuff changes like very exactly. last minute. Sometimes I've had my shit in a, and this is even major. Mo- it was just like with filmmaking. Sometimes for a premiere, I'm sure a major motion picture is a different thing. But I've had my sh- like people text me like, "Hey, I heard your song in this thing," and I was like. Wait, I didn't even know I got that. And then I hear like a couple days later, they're like, hey, by the way, you know. Well, I can tell you the check cleared. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's sick. That's good. Uh, And and we've been working together and growing and also always having time to do what he really loves, which is working in the video game community and working, uh, loves getting in front of kids. You know, he teaching beat him down a bit, as it does a lot of people, but he still really every time he can wants to go to schools and go to boys and girls clubs and do things that are, that are all ages and for kids. Cool. He's just one of those like all around good people that you could hardly believe exists. Yeah. Cause I, like, not that we always get along and it's all flowers and butterflies, but like cool headed, even keeled. Um, I don't, I can't rightly say I've ever seen him truly angry. I'm sure it exists, but I've never seen it. And we've worked together very closely and I've put him in some very frustrating situations. <laughs> Dang, that's uh, that's really cool. I, I, it's cool when you notice that about a person too. When you're like, man, it almost, it's almost unbelievable that you're just like this fucking solid, you know. He's a, he's a human being who can both defend himself in every sense of the word verbally, and he's a very big man, and but who will also put on his Instagram world's greatest hugger. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I like that a lot. Um, what is your as someone who just got into managing and not something you planned on doing, you had like, uh, like gone to school for or anything like that. Like what, like, what did you, what were some things that you had to learn? Like part of the learning curve and then like, what is your day to day or like, wh- what do you, what would you say you do as a manager? Cause like as someone who just self manages, I'm just like, I just do all this shit. I don't know what, if I hired a manager, what would I have them do? Learning curve was friggin' everything. I knew nothing. And I had stepped into this arena a little bit before. I'm so glad I get to talk about this band. There's a band that I loved back then from Phoenix that I'm still obsessed with to this day. I was listening to them on the way here. Cool. They're called Wolves. Wolves. W-O-L-V-V-E-S. I've, I saw that name a bunch. Did they break up? Uh, Aiden currently lives here. The lead singer and the former lead guitarist currently still live in New York City as far as I know. Aiden was doing a project called Thug, but I haven't seen any Thug shows around either. Uh-huh. Um, Wolves was just this unbelievable rock, like 
garage rock band from Phoenix. They were part of it's interesting that I brought up uh, King Pizza earlier. Mm-hmm. I met King Pizza through a guy named Robbie Pfeffer. Robbie Pfeffer's the lead singer of a band called Playboy Man Baby, which Okay, I know Playboy Man Baby. My favorite active band in the world by far. And the only reason I say active is because if Wolves came back, I'm sorry, Robbie, but you're down a pick. Yeah. And uh love Playboy Man Baby. I've flown across the country multiple times to see them to see them do their big stuff. Like they played a music festival that I just absolutely would not miss, so I flew out to see them. Cool. Uh, they've they sold out the Van Buren on Megaran's birthday, a sixteen hundred person venue. I flew out for that. Megaran got to play that one. Cool. Uh, I'm actually they did like a concert doc, and I'm in it because I was part of the Playboy Man Baby Tabernacle Choir. Sick. <laughs> and um, so they Wolves was part of this insular scene called uh, Rubber Brother Records. That had that same like yeah the shows are always packed but it's like literally the same kids at every show. And it was a lot of fun, and we built a good scene, and Playboy kind of came out of that scene, and there was a lot of talent in there. Mm-hmm. And um, But Wolves, like I was so close to them, and they saw what I did with New Times, and I always had ideas and wanted to talk to them. I was booking shows all the time. I tried to book them as much as I could. And eventually I was sort of like working for them, like doing kind of PR, like writing press releases and stuff like that for uh-huh. them. That didn't really turn into much. And then I shortly after, I think I was like, in between when my mom died and when I left Phoenix. So we're talking about like a four month period. Yeah. And that's the only time I got anywhere near. And honestly, I kind of think Aiden just knew how happy it would make me to be close to wolves that way. Yeah. That even more so than him worrying about me doing a good job. He was just trying to like be a homie. What's really good to have also really good to have people around your project that are going to be out there singing your praises and like, like talking you up to people because it's like, if I sit there and just talk, myself up on a certain level it's just kind of annoying and can be kind of pompous but having being surrounded by people that like can that are excited about your project can really re-enliven all the boring shit you know i've never and it's so some of the songs that hit in such a poignant way to me he thought were childish nonsense (laughs) wolves but so that's the only experience i had being working for a band i had professional experience covering music for the Mm -hmm. Phoenix New Times for years. I also worked for a magazine called Our Beats, and I worked, that's who flew me out for the festival uh, that Robbie played, and Mm -hmm. I worked for Entertainment Voice, and I had stories in uh, punk uh, uh, dyingscene.com, which was a really big punk website, Mm -hmm. and photos popping up all over the place. I've had photos in Maxim Magazine. Um, but I'd never worked directly for an artist before. So when Rand hired me, it was just crash courses in everything because I really understood how little I knew about anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I just, he just completed his first tour that I booked. Cool. Like the first tour I've ever booked. Like I've booked a few shows here and there for people. I've helped people get shows. I've done a, what I would call like a string of shows even, like helped someone get three shows. But to book a whole 10, 12 day tour, I'd never done before. Uh-huh. And I learned all those skills to do that under Megaran. And I, it doesn't hurt when your email address is management at Megaran.com. Totally. Not that he's a big, big deal, but promoters promoters who want to do a good job at their job because you're not going to get Wilco every night. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get LL Cool J every night. Promoters who do a good job know Megaran draws. We yeah, draw totally. in major markets. There's a, you know, there's a few markets we could do better in, but... Put us in just about any major market in the country. We'll bring out at least 100 people. That's awesome. That's I mean, I've always said that is like if I get to the point where I know I can play to at least 100 people a night, I could do this forever. 
you know, and not that like I'd play to less. I play to less all the fucking time. But I mean, so do we. I yeah. don't want to slander my boy, but we've not every show went as well as we wished it. Did. I think that's just the nature of like the fact that there's there's a thing called Tuesday fucking night. Yeah. You know what I mean? You like can skip Mondays, but you can't skip Tuesdays. It's hard. It's hard to skip both. Um, we skip Mondays. We don't even think about Mondays. Mondays are not the thought. The last Monday we thought about was this coming Halloween, and Mega Ran laughed at me when I tried to book a show on. He was like, "We're not playing a Monday. I don't care if it is Halloween." Yeah, no, that's legit. Like I, I've I've been booked to, to or worked like a a Halloween night on a fucking you're playing Monday a Monday. Night. You're playing this Monday. Oh well, this was because <laughs> I w- I was supposed to play. We were supposed to play this venue July six with some friends from LA but there was like a mix up with uh, the booking person and so they thought it was June 6th and so we ended up working it out we're playing at a different one of Bowery's venues on July 6th but since that night was free and it was like two weeks out I was like Hey, if you don't have a band to play, like we'll play. We we like playing. I don't guarantee we're gonna. You got to bring twelve or more people to like make any money. We're probably not gonna make any money. Like I don't know if we're gonna bring twelve people, but like I'll show up. The <laughs> band and I, yeah, appreciate that. And the band and I fucking love playing. And we're we're in like this cool pocket after that last tour where like it's just like let's just keep it going. Let's keep playing as much as possible because July we're taking off. I'm doing a solo tour and they're all like traveling and doing other shit and. You know, hopefully, fingers crossed, Europe ends up happening in September. We're a little worried because COVID shit's getting weird over there. Um, COVID's getting weird everywhere. That's something I really try not to think about because I, we've been, Team Megaran has been unbelievably lucky. Yeah. No one's gotten COVID on any of our tours at all. We've, we've toured a bunch of times through COVID world now, and no one's come home sick yet. Yeah, we've toured twice, and both times I, well, one of the times was just allergies. Neither of us, like, none of us got sick, but, like, this fall both Blake and I got like kind of sick and we took tests and neither of us had COVID, but it was like, like, fuck if this seven week tour has to shut down because COVID, I didn't even think about that when I was booking it. (laughs) We were uh, quite lucky. We worked with some wonderful bookers on his bigger, his last couple, I I booked the last one, but before that we do this thing called the four eyed horseman with Mm -hmm. Schaefer, the dark Lord, MC front a lot and MC Lars. And MC, uh, some I'm not sure which guys, maybe it's all the other guys work with Fata Booking, Eva. Uh, Fata. Fata. Yeah, my buddy. I've dude. I've been. I was trying to get booked with that or get signed with that band with my or with that booking agent with my old band. So I'm sorry. I'm aware of who they are. So I, I'm I'm blanking on her last name. Her first name is Eva. She runs the company. She's yeah. like a legend in the yeah. industry. Like she's. I didn't realize who we were working with until I read an article about her thoughts about. Um, covid and what the industry would be like and i'm like wait isn't that the person who books and then i was like mind blown like all right i'm yeah. working with a legend and i, need I to treat this I, woman. i've known lots of people throughout the years that were on that she booked for so she did all the booking uh or i believe one of her someone who works for her did all the mm-hmm. booking uh chris chris schwartz in fact who's another very talented booking uh cool. booking agent and booked him on like two week spurts three two week spurts three two week legs uh-huh that i guess Instead of going out six weeks and having to cancel an entire six-week run, that way, if someone did get sick, they go home, they get better, and they can come back to the next two-week run. Oh, cool, yeah. But actually, actually, I don't think that's necessarily – because also, if I recall, the, the official plan was if anyone gets COVID, they stop in their tracks, sit tight until they can get home. Yeah. Like, we weren't going to keep trying to spread. and Totally. It's but, all been but so it, complicated. But it gives you the chance to, like – Instead of having to cancel all six weeks, being like, well, we have time to recover and maybe not do have to cancel leg. or yeah. do the, le- yeah. 
Uh, but also, like, with the, like, being irresponsible and spreading COVID or not, like, no one's going to pay your rent. If you're a touring musician and that's what you do for a career, are you supposed to go learn how to be a, a call center agent or something because COVID happened? Yeah. So, like, we had, like, I'm a bartender when I'm not, you know, working music. Like, I'm a gig bartender. I need people to go to bars. Like, mm-hmm. unless they want to, st- unless someone else is going to pay my rent, I need the world to open back up. Yeah, it's like you can understand both. Like I can understand the economic argument of of what COVID, you know, or of like that and everything. Like two years ago, when we were trying to shut this fucking thing down as quickly as possible, and people are having that argument, it's like, yo, the government's gonna pay you to fucking stay home. Like let's all let's all try and take care of this. And then now nobody's really given a fuck for two fucking years. So it's like, I got to go out there and play shows, and I'm gonna be careful about it. And I'm, but and we'll see what numbers do, but. Yeah, I'm nervous about having to postpone the Europe tour. I also think we're seeing a lot of like, like what, luckily the world we uh, occupy, Megaran and I, um, people are buying tickets to shows they're not coming to, which in a way helps yeah, because it keeps those events afloat, but in a way hurts because like events are setting up to have 15,000 people at them and a third of those people aren't showing up. Yeah. So vendors are bringing too much food and too much yeah. merch and... There's too much, uh, too much infrastructure. They spent so much money on infrastructure that went wasted, and then it costs them money. These events, these vendors, these distributors, whatever they may be, it costs them money to deal with the overages. I have infinitely too many hot dogs to sell because enough people didn't show up, and now it's going to cost me a bunch of money just to dispose of the hot dogs. So yeah. I paid to have them, didn't sell them. Now I'm paying to get rid of them. Yeah, that's fucked. It, but then, I mean, but also they want their favorite event to come back the next year, so it needs to sell tickets. It's yeah. it's all complicated, you know. No, it's very complicated. Um, yeah, it's fucked up. Because we work a lot of yearly stuff too. Like there's stuff that just reaches out every year, every other year that we can like set our watches to. Yeah. You know, it's this month. Pax is going to be calling. Like, don't book for that month because we know that it's going to be Magfest time. Yeah. That's that's cool. That's a that's a really nice place to get to. Um, He's found a niche that also he's so fucking talented. Mm-hmm. He's so good at what he does that it's he's transcended his niche, I think. Yeah. No, that's I mean, that's what they always say is like to start try and find a niche and like just fuck just like work that because that's how you can grow an audience, but then like you know like with anything a lot of times the cream rises to the top or the thing with the most high-powered money gun (laughs) behind it but you know if you're if you're good enough to transcend and your art means is bigger than this little community that and not saying little in a demeaning way but this community that you you kind of found an audience and a a hold in and then it can grow past that i mean that's the goal i also think you know social media being the devil and all it's opened up a uh, it's opened up the industry for somebody like Megaran for other, I think other people like we're finding people make very lucrative careers with very small fan bases because the fan bases they have are able to connect with them mm-hmm. back when, you know, we kind of like people think we have a monoculture now. And I think we had a monoculture back when the Beatles were coming out. Oh yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. They are the fucking Beatles. And I know yeah. what that means. But they were also the only thing on the radio, and everybody loved them so much because there were no other options. And now I can go to Spotify and find 75 bands without even trying that all sound completely different. Yeah. And so it really, like, I don't think we have a monoculture. I think, like, 
when it comes down to it, even the normiest normies are getting into whatever it is they like more so than they ever have before with totally. message boards, with gaming on your phones. There's all these, like, I love the Jurassic Park movies. There's going to be like a Pokemon Go of Jurassic Park coming out soon. Oh, really? Yeah. And, um, and that's good. You know, it, it, it's, it's I, I still think social media is a net, a net loss for humanity as somebody who'd have a regular job if it wasn't for social media. Well, I mean, social media wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't all owned by one fucking company or by, you know, like if it was, um, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like Amazon's a fucking great thing. I love being able to order something and have it like just at my house the next day. That's really fucking cool. But the fact that it exists on the backs of exploited workers and, and like Jeff Bezos is just bleeding the planet dry and not putting any money back into it. Well, it's also like, their real money comes from like data mining and web services and like the, the money's not the deliveries and the fucking books. That was all cute. Or even the TV shows. It's, it's data mining. Yeah. Well, uh, these guys are at, like anyone out there listening who like, who digs billionaires, you're lame for digging them and they're lame for existing. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, and also we could, I mean, we should probably wrap it up soon, but I think we like, um, like Amazon should be a public utility. The 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 delivery system and everything like that. At this point it's gotten so big that like in a it should be owned I don't know how to put it. Like it's it's almost like the mail service. Like it it doesn't I don't know. A lot of people are going to really disagree with me on that. But I don't even know if I, I I'd rather see Amazon dismantled and Jeff Bezos exiled. Well, yeah, uh-huh. I'd definitely rather see that, but um, I did really enjoy the guy in Staten Island who was like, "Well, you were busy going to space; I was busy building a union." Yeah, and then cool. the fucking union didn't end up coming through or something like that. They voted it down the second time or something. The thing about unions, unfortunately, when you live in a capitalist society that's as materialistic as we are, unions very often become just a mediation between bosses and workers, and that's not they're supposed to have the workers' backs, and they really don't. You know what? You want to know what the strongest union in this country is? The fucking cops. Oh, the cops union. Yeah. It's, and they should. I'm all. I'm pro a, union, and cops shouldn't be able to have a union. They're not laborers. You know they aren't. I remember they're exploiters. At, at a Phoenix, uh, at a Tempe event called like Liberty Fest or something stupid like that, there was a uh, uh, libertarian candidate for Ar- Maricopa County Sheriff, and we were trying to get him to let us put uh, anti-police union literature on his table. We're like, you're a libertarian. This you should be anti-union. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like you were passing out anti uh, anti-police union. Literature. Well, in the American yeah. bastardization of the word libertarian and the concept of it is like not what original. Yeah, every other country libertarian and anarchist is interchangeable. In America, yeah. libertarian and white supremacist is interchangeable. Yeah, it's fucked. I mean, white supremacist and like America is interchangeable. interchangeable. <laughs> uh, well, dude, this has been a great conversation. I would love to just hear if you could really quick say, like one. Uh, like the most important lesson you've learned while managing Megaran and two, like any advice you'd give to someone who's like jumping into management for the first time. The most important lesson I still have to learn constantly. It's something I learn every fucking day as cliche as that sounds, which is check your ego. Oh yeah. Especially as a manager, I think as a, as, as a human being, Check your ego is probably good advice, but as, totally. as a manager of an artist, I'm not the talent. I'm not the draw. I'm not the focal point. It's not all about me. Any slight, I feel like I took any negative things. Somebody said when I'm managing all of this is, a, uh, 
none of it's personal. It's all business. Smile, be polite, and that's going to get you farther than getting angry. And totally. the, the anger almost always comes from my ego. Every once in a while, it's been righteous indignation. But for the most part, it's my ego telling me something that I know I need to ignore. Um, and that's the most important lesson I've learned. And, and the advice for somebody trying to get into it, for one thing, uh, this might be more to artists than to managers. If your band is not turning a profit, they, you don't need a manager. If there's, if there's no money, to you, you can't. There's 20% of zero is zero. Yeah. So like, if you're paying out of pocket from your job to pay your manager, your band wasn't ready for a manager yet. Um, yeah, I, I, I really got to say like that that works both ways. Like, if you think you're a good manager and you could manage a band well, but they're not making any money, you're basically exploiting them. Yeah. And if you're um, if you're if you're a band who you're not making money yet you're throwing away your resources in, in a manager when you can be spending that on something on making your band profitable. Yeah. There's something else you could be doing to make your band profitable because the manager is not the answer. Uh, I can use my connections. I don't have a ton of them, but I can use my connections to help somebody get a good show. But if you're just not there yet, that's not really going to help you. Totally. One, it's like, yeah, getting yourself, if your band gets in front of 500 people, that's dope. But like what happens when you sound like shit? Because you're not there yet. Or if you don't have merch to sell to those 500 yeah. people. Or if you don't know how to properly connect with them. If you don't have business cards to hand out. If you don't have, if you're just not there yet, you're not there yet. No matter how good your band might sound. No, that's that's so true. And that was something that Josh from Select Shows taught me. He was kind of a mentor back in the day when I was first learning how to like break out of like my small town scene into the Phoenix scene. And something he told me, gave me a lot of advice. And uh, one of the things was, was like, and I still take this, keep this like to this day, I think I do a good job of is like, you want to one, if you get an opening act, you're like, if you're a touring band, your job is to steal fans from the local bands. If you don't have a big draw, you want to play well enough that you get new fans from the people that are there. Um, and if you're a local band opening for the touring band, you want to steal their fans by playing. You want to sound better than the touring band if you can. And then when you do that, have cooler merch than anybody there. You'll sell the most merch. He When he managed Job for a Cowboy, I guess they got to open some metal fest back in the day that had a huge opening and uh, or a huge following. And um, they sold more merch than like half of like the, the touring bands that night. And they were like the opener. So he was like, we made like thousands of dollars that night because we had the coolest fucking T-shirt out of all the bands there. I was like, oh, that's, you know, and a lot of bands don't do fucking merch. I probably do. I make the joke. I'm a traveling T-shirt salesman. Uh, that's actually MC Frontalot says that all the time. He's, oh, really? He's the godfather of nerdcore. He created the genre, and like that's that's been a running joke for him for a while. That's hilarious. I'm not a musician. I'm a T-shirt salesman. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I heard Jason Isbell say that or something. It's like it's. I mean, it's how you make it work. It's spaceballs. The the fucking merchandising. Absolutely. You know. I, I don't really. <laughs> the word manager is both like filthy disgusting that guy's probably a jerk and also like uh, the right manager will save my band or whatever and it's mm -hmm. like if, if you're not doing things like your manager can't do anything for you you as a manager can't do anything for the band the band has to do everything all you can do is provide support guidance and you know if you have connections use those connections when it makes sense because yeah. like i said i can get a band a good show i think i can get a bad band a good show if i tried hard enough and if they just don't have if they don't have it it's not gonna friggin' matter yeah that's great advice i dig it um 
I know you already mentioned some of your socials, but let's bring them up again. Let's get people to follow you on Instagram. Uh, Instagram is at Teenex Jeff Moses, T N E C K S Jeff Moses. Also at Dream City Postcards. Uh, those are the only ones I'm super active on. I try not to be on Facebook. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, if you want to find me, or also my, I said it earlier, my email address is management at megaran.com. I'm very easy to reach. Cool. And uh, where can they find more about Megaran if they don't know, if they're not familiar with them? Anywhere music is. M-E-G-A space R-A-N. Wherever you get your music, you will find Megaran. Uh, he's on all major socials under that name. He's on YouTube. He's on Twitch. Uh, the latest record's called Live 95, and we're very, very proud of it. I listened to Live 95 last week, I think. After I saw you last, or we talked last, and I listened to it, and I was like, damn, this record's fucking sick. <laughs> so I had never listened to him. We talked about Megaran, but I'd never like actually been able to listen to him, and I did, and I was like, damn, this is cool. I, I dig it. So um, check it out. Thanks for listening to Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. We could probably have you on again, and we could get way more into all kinds of stuff. Thanks for having me. I'd love to come back and we'll get Mega Ran on here soon. Totally. That would be awesome. Thanks again. Thank you everyone for tuning in and uh, I'm going to go pee.